Hey, Hotshot, should we tell everybody that on episode 125, you're not here? Although people said we could fool everyone if we didn't tell anybody that you're actually at your home and I'm at my home. Do we want to tell people why that we've had a little scare or no? Do we keep that under our hats? No, let's. we could tell people we had a little scare. But um, it, no matter what you say, there's going to be the camp that's like, God, how dare you? And then there's a camp that's like, quit being a big wimp. <laughs> like, no matter what you say, people are going to, you know, well, you know half what? the I'm crew's wor- going to hate it. Well, I'm worried about that little section of audience that feels like they can get it by listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah, so no, I mean no, no, it's I, not I, it's not communicable through your phone. You're okay, but go ahead, tell right. everybody. I think you're okay and your family's okay, but we're trying to be extra safe here on Mitch Unfiltered, right? Yeah, so I, I told you that on New Year's Eve, we didn't go anywhere, and my daughter had a friend come over for the first sleepover in nine months, of course, right? Uh-huh. And this 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 friend of hers, um, her father passed away this summer, not of COVID, but, you know, so we're really trying to help the family out, and it was a nice relief from the mom who has two other kids, like, we'll take her, all good. And then a couple days after she was with us, the mom calls us and says, I've tested positive, I being the mom of the friend, but the friend hasn't tested positive. And then two days later, the friend tested positive. So. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, and so after staying over with you, and I'm glad that you lopped on how great of a how great people you are for taking the kid. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, you I mean, I don't know. <laughs> honestly, I don't know if we typically would be having sleepovers, but it's like we're yeah, trying oh. to help her out. So you're and, trying you know. you're trying to explain to the section of our audience that's saying, "How dare you have a sleepover during yes, the pandemic?" That's exactly right. You're trying yep. to tell everybody the reason is because you're such nice people. That's you exactly and, right. You, yes. you and your wife are not okay. Mostly I, my wife. I, right. <laughs> so the mother. <laughs> so the mother test positive and the daughter tests positive this is days after she stayed over on new year's eve yeah we heard maybe a couple days for the mom and then maybe two or three more days later for the daughter in fact the mom thinks that had she not have come to our house the daughter would have tested positive at the same time but she may have staved it off by a day or two from because she was with us and wasn't at home so, so. now what so what happens in the soden household of course you tell mitch levy and mitch levy literally hangs up the phone on you and goes and hides under the desk as you're telling me yeah. on the phone because I thought I, maybe I could catch it over the phone, right? That I that's right, and I, I did get the uh, hazmat suit that you sent today, UPS. <laughs> Paid a lot in shipping. It came right away. That so I said to you, well, you guys got to get tested. I mean, the yeah. contact tracing, I think that if we had Dr. Anthony Fauci or anybody else, they would say, all right, let's not overreact, but since you were exposed to someone who is now COVID positive, that the mm-hmm. three of you in the Soden household should be tested before you go out and about anywhere because you could be asymptomatic and spreading of the of the of the virus, right? Right. How's that going well, for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm cool with getting tested because I, I do have to go into your house twice a week, so I'm I'm happy to do it. God and other forbid, places, I, I bring it in. You're not and- just coming into our house. You co- you go to other places. You're just not concerned with the other people that you see. You're only concerned with the Levy family and the Mis- and Misty Levy. You don't want to spread because you and Misty are so close. You might spread it oh. to Misty. Yeah. <laughs> people are talking about Misty and I's relationship. Oh my God, she pees but- every time she sees. <laughs> I know. I, I, I stupidly said something at your house that I was so embarrassed. I didn't know oh your wife was God. nearby. Oh, God. I, so I, I, think, I think Misty, like, wet the floor and peed. And I said, yeah, all the girls used to do that when I, you know, or something. Oh. And your wife's around the corner. She goes, keep it clean. I'm like, oh, Jesus. I forgot Brett's, like, 15. And, you know, the, like, and, the, and that was oh, a, and that God. was after you gave them COVID. You said that. That's exactly right. <laughs> I know. No wonder I'm not oh, welcome God. anymore. Oh, Christ. Oh, God. So what do yeah. we going to do here so we got a stalemate your your wife and your daughter don't think it's necessary they feel fine 
and they don't want to get tested. Of course, your daughter doesn't want to get tested because of the same reason a lot of us don't want to. She doesn't want to be uncomfortable, and she's traumatized. She's young. So where do we go from here? And you, you're you okay with being tested. I'm fine with being tested. I mean, I, I kind of want to know, you know. Um, but my, my wife just, she says it's, it'll be 10 or 11 days. No one's had symptoms they say you're not contagious after 10 days. And, and I said, well, what if you could wave a magic wand and find out whether you're positive or not? Would that, would that affect anything? And she said, well, of course I would want to know. But so, so part of she it is the process. Want, she and, doesn't want the, uh, the thing up the schnoz. She doesn't want the schnoz. That's pretty much it. She's yeah, scared of this. Has she seen my schnoz? They took a ladder to go up there. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They had to get the extension you out. Tell like her the, the, if, if anybody, <laughs> if I can do it, anybody can do it for God's yeah. sakes. They had an extension rod on the Schwab. They had the, the whole thing. <laughs> at the very, at the very least, I'll go get tested and that'll be a little peace of mind. But again, if, if, if they're positive, then I don't know what good it does, but I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just, I'll probably get tested on Monday as you hear this. Okay. Uh, there's one right by my house that you get the results in a couple days, I think. So we'll just. Go from there, and then I guess I don't know what what they're gonna do. I don't know, I don't know. They're their own people. I can't force them to go get tested. Well, so for now, what do we, what do we do? What kind of precautions does Mitch Unfiltered take? Well, I think do we get Brian together, Wheeler's the do, new host. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd prefer. I'm gonna take some sick leave. Well, well, well he's not necessarily in my house either. It's not like that. <laughs> yeah, not like that. True. I'm accomplishing anything by talking to Portland for God's sakes. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I don't know, man. I'll just keep everyone posted, and we'll right. do it. Do it from here for right, now. I hope and everybody's well. I hope everybody. Yeah. Got, thank you. I've got good news and bad news. Which would you like first? Oh, I always like the bad news first. The bad news is I didn't win. Oh, it was nose of the year contest no, already? No. <laughs> no, that I would have won. <laughs> right, okay. Carl well, you win? Carl Malden nipped me. <laughs> Carl Malden. Is he even alive, the poor guy? <laughs> Jimmy Durante caught me oh. just by a sliver. Uh, Boy. No, I did not want I played the lottery. I decided that I was going to play the lottery, and I, pl- I played Mega Millions on Friday, and I played the Powerball on Saturday, and my bad news is I didn't win. The good news is... No one won in the entire world. Ooh, either, it carries either, over. Either one. It's a carryover pot. <laughs> I love it. It's like guts. It's you like skins. Ma- you got to match the pot. That's right. It's like skins. That's right. Guts. So I, uh, I, I wanted to share that with you. I'm not typical lot- lottery players. It's been years probably since I bought a lottery ticket, but I bought two of them. I bought, I bought actually five for each. Five for Friday's Mega Millions and five for Saturday's Powerball. Was it at like a historic high and so you wanted to get in on the fun? We were, my wife and I were shopping. We were at QFC down in the U Village. You know the U Village QFC? We're over there in the U Village QFC. And I see, and I I had read the articles that the Mega Millions on Friday was up to 500 million. Oh, And and the other one was up to 600 million on Saturday for Powerball. So I thought I'd win both. I just thought I'd win both, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really didn't want. To, I really didn't play to win both one of them. I didn't want to win one. I wanted to win both, and you know, my mom has has experience with the lottery as well. Yeah, wasn't there some kind of story about your dad tricking her or yeah, something yeah. with the lottery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, when I sent out the picture on Twitter, Mitch underscore Seattle. By the way, I haven't even said Apple Podcast or any Apple or any podcast platform. Subscribe, please, and rate us one to five stars. And it really helps when you give us a review and you post a review. It helps in the algorithms. I've been told to say it helps in the algorithms of the Apple Podcast platform. I don't know what that means, but that's what I've been told to say. Uh, And also for the 200 of you that kicked our ass in the Beat the Boys contest, I've reached out via email. You've heard from me. 
me. Check your email. A lot of you have gotten back to me. Stay with it. It's it, there's just I expected like five or ten people to, to for me to owe prizes to. I didn't expect right. to owe 270 prizes. So <laughs> this is a little bit of a logistical Ooh. nightmare, and I hope yeah. that we'll I, I hope that we'll be able to do it again. Yes, the answer is yes. And when I sent out the picture of my mom getting vaccinated, we talked about this on a P episode. How for the patrons, how moving. I never realized how emotional or moving I would get when I was surprised by my brother when he texted me, my mom, 86 years old in Florida, getting getting vaccinated. Right. I mean, it was such a moving experience because we've been sick. We've been on pins and needles with her for the last, as, as so many people have, 10 or 11 months. And my heart just breaks for everybody who didn't had a mom or a dad that didn't get a chance, didn't make it yeah. until uh, vaccinated. But she was vaccinated. And when I posted that picture, everybody was so happy for me. I said how emotional I was on Twitter at Mitch uh, underscore Seattle. That's the other line. Um, I said how uh, how emotional it was. And then a lot, a couple of people, I should say a lot. A couple of people said it reminds, seeing that picture reminds me of the day she won the lottery. Have you not heard that story? Hot shots, no. God. I, ha- I know something about it, but I don't remember. It's I don't cl- remember it. It's a classic Levy story. And it's one of those Levy family stories that could have literally led to the f- complete fracture of our family for the rest oh, for a permanent <laughs> fracture of our family. Oh man. But my mom, my mom, I wouldn't say as a lotto player, my dad certainly wasn't, but every, yeah. I, I don't know what you remember about it, but 25 or 30 or 35, it's gotta be 40 years. Let's say 40 years ago, 40 years yeah. ago, it was a state by state thing. They didn't have the Powerball. Right. Each state had its own lottery. And for whatever reason, Florida had a lottery that would get up to a lot of money, a lot more hmm. than the other states. I'm not sure why, but every right. once in a while, the news would come on. And we, we were big news watchers in our family. Same. And, and we would watch the 11 o'clock news, and every once in a while, the top story was the Florida lottery has gotten to 100 million. I remember 100 million was the magic number. And my mom would perk up and go, 100 million? I got I to gotta win that. I want to win that. Right. So she would never play, but she'd hear $100 million on WPEC, Channel 12's news, and she was like, Bobby, I'm playing it the next time. So there was a 7-Eleven that was two minutes from our door, and nice. she went on this. I would say that I was probably 16, 17, maybe this is 1983, 85, something like that. And $100 million, by the way, 1983, 84. It's, it's like you can't even fathom that. $100 million, and my Everyone, Everybody wanted to be a millionaire. That's right. <laughs> like <laughs> one million, like a hundred. That's like not even a real number back then. And God bless my mom. She thought it was easy to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they call it a tax on the stupid, which probably isn't very nice. But but I, I, I do have to before you finish your story, the, the, the Washington State Lotto had the greatest uh, ad campaign. They said the odds in winning are one in something, something, something if you play considerably higher if you don't and I, I always thought that was really good like That's well common. yeah it's not very good odds but if you don't play the odds are worse so anyway yes, yes. so this on this particular occasion where it reached 100 million and i'm sorry to those of you that have heard this story before she went to the 7-eleven little 7-eleven two minutes from our door on us1 in north palm beach and she bought herself some what they call quick pick tickets yep you, you had to fill out with a pencil Quick pick, and she bought herself like five tickets. I don't know what it was. Okay. She brought them home. And this the, the drawing was going to be on a Saturday night for the Florida State, $100 million, $112 million, something lot. It's all her. She has it spent. She has half of it spent yeah, she, already, she, right? She, it's just as easy as going to 7-Eleven <laughs> and filling out the form. Right. And yeah. my dad, God, may he rest in peace. My dad just decided, I don't know what, I don't know what 
kind of came of him or came over him, I should say. But he just decided that he was going to do a number on my mom. So he got so this so this lotto was on Saturday night and they would announce the numbers late Saturday night. But if you didn't see him on Saturday night, you would get him in the Sunday paper. Right. Okay. He got up the Sunday morning after the lottery and he went to 7-Eleven with the newspaper and he bought a ticket, one ticket for the next lottery with the exact numbers of the of the previous night's hundred million dollar lottery. Oh my God, that's terrible. And you know, and you know the 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 date of the lottery. You don't really look at the date of the lottery. Right, right. It's right. tiny. It's at she the top. Took, you know, yeah. He took this ticket home. He knew exactly where oh, she God. where she where she was keeping her lottery oh, that's, tickets. That's and, horrible. And she he slipped in one of these and took <laughs> out. He slipped in this one and took out the other one, or one of oh. the other ones. So now, fast forward a few hours, it's a Sunday afternoon in the Levy household. They had two chairs, kind of like Edith and Archie Bunker. I don't want to call my dad Archie Bunker, but he had his chair. We all, I don't know if you, most families, everybody had a chair. My father had his chair. He sat in his chair and he had the newspaper up. He was always reading the newspaper and he had the newspaper up so you couldn't see his face because my mother says to my brother, let's get the, let's get the lottery. Let's see if I won. And so she goes to get the tickets oh. and she pulls out the newspaper and you know what happens. She starts reading numbers. She's looking back. Oh, oh my God. Oh, oh, oh my, oh, 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 oh my God. <laughs> like when she got to three or four, did she get your guys' attention? Uh, like you might be yeah. onto something? Yeah, or? She, was, she was so flabbergasted as, as much as she thought she could win. And she thought she had won a hundred million dollars she starts what was her reaction she, she starts I mean, screaming bobby i want and, and her reaction was <laughs> oh, this, she's about a five foot five woman she she ended up on her back on the couch okay so yeah all right so 1985 86 she would be let's call her 52 50 she's about my age now she okay. she she ends up with her back on the couch and her little legs up in the air kicking. I won! And my dad is behind this newspaper trying to keep it from just because <laughs> <laughs> if if he starts if she sees him laughing, it's, it's over. over. Like right, she, right. she'll know. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying like hell. Oh. And, and she's like, Bobby, put down the news. Why won't you put down the newspaper? I just won a hundred million. And she her legs are kicking. And of course. It was all a terrible, terrible joke. A terrible, now, terrible prank. If you told me that your parents got divorced because of that, I would <laughs> side with your mom. That's why I said it was nearly yeah. a permanent fracturing of the Levy yeah. family. She was so effing pissed, Hotshot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. I don't think she talked to him for weeks. I, I, think, I think a week went. She w- In fact, at one point she said, all right. Now, he turned to her with, the, and this is kind of the cap or the story that people like. My father always had, I know what you're going to say, the apple doesn't fall forever from the tree. My yeah. father always had something to say. He always had the explanation. And in this case, he said, look, Seal, you now know, you now have, have experienced a feeling so few people have ever experienced. Oh, that's you, some silver lining. <laughs> you, you, you now know what it feels like to win $100 million. Even though you didn't win it, you think about that. And that was his explanation. And she said to him, you know what? I'm going to start spending it on my credit card, the $100 million that I won. <laughs> 
and she go. got in the car and she went to the store and she just, started, she just started buying things. I got a hundred million, Good. Bobby. I got a hundred million. <laughs> wait, till you, wait, wait till your assistant gets the, v, the, the American Express bill. Wait till Marlene <laughs> right. gets the American Express bill. Marlene's going to look at that bill. I, I want a hundred million. I'm just going to start spending it now. Oh, and it God. was unbelievable. The thing that saved your dad was that, that he had a couple bucks. You know, you guys weren't, if you, if they were dead broke and he pulled that on her, she might've stabbed him. Oh God. Right. I mean that, the, the thing, you know, that, I think oh. that sort of saved him a little bit that, yeah. you know, you weren't, you know, hundred million is great, but you guys were doing okay back yeah. then. So there, there, there was a funny, a fun, that's the same bit that was on Reno 911. Oh, really? Like watch that show. Oh, really? No. So somebody did it with scratch tickets. They gave everyone these fake, you could buy these fake scratchers now which is cruel. So everyone won like 800 grand or something on a scratcher. And so the next day at work for their meeting, people are coming in in fur coats saying, F you, I never liked you. I'm out of here. I quit because they all thought they were rich. And then eventually he had to tell them, no, no, no. Every ticket was fake, but they had already said F you and I hate you and all oh that to, to everybody. And they already oh bought the fur God. coats. All that. It's, pretty, it's pretty funny to walk in with two middle fingers up. I never liked any of you guys. I quit. Wait a minute. That ticket was fake. It was a pretty, pretty oh. funny bit. That, that, that's, I, I don't know what your dad was trying to get out of that. I, 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 that to me is just cruel. so cruel it, to do. Cruel. It really it's cruel. is it's cruel. cruel. It's creative. No one had thought yeah. of that that routine. You know, it was this 1980s. He probably was the first guy to ever think of that, but it was creative. Oh, really, yeah. gosh, that's oh, funny. Uh, anyway, we, we haven't even gotten through the tea segment. I wanted to make people laugh or chuckle because this is a show that I think that a lot of people will be listening to. Very miserable if you're a Seahawks fan. Guests on the show, and I promise you some really good guests. If you're into the pain and suffering of the Seahawks and you really want to hear a critical analysis of what happened on Saturday night, you'll get that a little bit from me and Scott. You'll also, in the first guest segment, get it from Brady and Joe. We are doing a special edition. Normally, the Seahawks note table is reserved for the patrons on Thursdays and Fridays. We are getting the guys together, Brady and Joe, since it's the end of the football season, and asking the question, what the F happened on Saturday night? So guest segment number one, the Seahawks no table, Brady and Joe and myself talk about Pete Carroll, his coaching staff, Russell Wilson, and what the hell happened on Saturday afternoon at, what do they call it, Lumen Field. That's segment Lumen number Field. one of guest, that's guest segment number one. Guest segment number two, on the day or on the evening that we're recording this, the Sunday that we're recording this, part one of a new, very highly acclaimed documentary is being released on HBO. It's called Tiger. Who do you think it's about? It's not It's not the guy who does, the guy who's in jail. What's it, Joe something or other? It's, it's not, not Tiger King, no, Joe Exotic? No, no. it's about It's about Siegfried and Roy. Yeah, it's not about right? Siegfried and about, Roy. About it's when not, the Tiger got no, loose and no. killed everybody in Las Vegas? Guess again. It's not about that? Guess All again. Right, tiger. All right, so two-part series. Part one is on the day that we're recording this. Part two is next Sunday. Tiger is called the documentary, and we've got the film's director, Matthew Hamachek, on the show to talk about the Great. making of Tiger and what is it about Tiger Woods and you're not a golf guy, but Tiger Woods probably in my lifetime, in your lifetime, is the most intrigued. People want to know more about Tiger Woods than just about any athlete or performer or any individual in our lifetime. Yeah, so I mean, I was going to ask you, well, on a like one to 10, 10 being, I can't wait to freaking watch this. Where are you on on that scale of how excited you are to? Because to me, I figured you'd be like at a nine. You I was a seven this. before I talked to this guy, and I'm a nine now. Really? Okay, yeah. that's great. He sold me. 
I had read a lot of articles about it. And normally when I do these documentary directors, I actually watch. They send me a copy before it comes out so that I can see a copy of it before I do the interview. They sure. did actually did not send me a copy. So oh. I did the interview blind. After talking with him and reading a lot of kind of reviews of the piece, I'm now more excited to see it than I was before I talked to him. He's, he's good. He's good. He, he's Non-golf a, he, fans will he, like it? Well, this is the thing. He and the other director are not golf guys. Interesting. This this film was made by people who really they knew of Tiger Woods, but they yeah. really didn't know of Tiger Woods. He's going to tell you that on Thanksgiving in 2009, when the famous car accident, she ran after him with a golf club, and he went into yeah. the fire. When his whole world came crashing down in 2009, he says that's really when. Of course, I knew who Tiger Woods was as a golfer, but that's when I really kind of it hit me that oh my god, this is probably the most popular person popular not in a good way just just notable this is the most notable human being on the earth right now yeah. and uh, and they did a, they they spent a long time on this documentary and he's a he's a guest on our show and then finally the third guest we're going to wander away from sports and the Seahawks because a couple of a couple of shows ago I think it was I mentioned to you that our old friend left tackle of the Seahawks Russell Okung became the first NFL player and probably professional sports athlete to do what hot shot well he wanted to get partly paid in bitcoin he got half he got half of his salary he yeah. announced so f not only was he the first guy to not have an agent he represented himself he's kind of an independent thinker russell okung but now he's being paid he's the first guy to say i want half of my salary in bitcoin and i confess to you that somewhere along the line i never got on the bitcoin train that i really don't understand bitcoin and then i think you said to me you kind of understand it but you don't and then some people emailed and said you know you ought to do an educational segment so we can all learn what the f bitcoin is if that makes sense yeah i just know cryptocurrency but how do Correct. i get it what do i buy with it how does it work yeah I've, I've i've only used dollars in my life thus far <laughs> so so i do need this lesson and i can't wait to hear it well it, it coincides with the last eight weeks where bitcoin one bitcoin Eight weeks ago was worth $17,000. Today, as we record this, eight weeks later, one Bitcoin is worth over $40,000. It's doubled. It's been the Ooh. talk of the investment world in the last eight weeks. So we've got Mark DeCambry of Market Watch. He's going to teach us once and for all the, the history and what exactly is Bitcoin. And for those nice. of you that think, oh, you already know and... You guys are idiots for not following because you're just sports guys. Well, I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> oh, it is true. I get right. it. Right. All right. But before we begin, more good news from Zeke's Pizza to start 2021. Celebrating with a brand new location in Kenmore, Washington, right across the street from City Hall at 18115 68th Avenue Northeast. Open last week, even during the pandemic, Zeke's Pizza continues to expand a staple in the Northwest for so many years. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Daniel's Broiler, if you have a birthday or anniversary or special occasion, don't hesitate to continue celebrating with Daniel's Broiler. Pick up or have it delivered. A special bottle of Vouve Clicquot remains at an incredible price of $40 to start the year. Daniel's Broiler, straight to your door, making your home a world class steakhouse the kirkland office at gill mortgage with 30-year fixed rates in the twos 
a seven-minute phone call with Jordan Flowers or a member of his team is all it takes to find out the incredible monthly savings of a refinance available to you. 425-250-3150. Take advantage of these crazy low numbers. You're silly not to explore. An Evergreen Golf Call. Tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers all working together to bring retirement planning, taxes, and investments under one roof. Sign up for an upcoming money workshop by visiting evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. Episode 125, it won't be all tears. There'll be some laughs along the way. Begins right now. Unfiltered. That game was an embarrassment. They weren't prepared. They were outcoached. They weren't ready to play. They weren't ready to adjust. They had no imagination on offense going against the number one defense in the NFL. They did nothing as a coach. To say that they were outcoached by the other sideline would be doing a disservice to the word outcoached. Unfiltered. Russell Wilson at 35 or $40 million a year. Going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. He was a below average NFL quarterback the last six or seven games, and he wasn't helped by his offensive coaching staff. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 125 is now officially underway hotshot scott you at your place me at my place will try to make this a, i don't think anybody would even know or be able to tell a difference do you or not when you listen to these things back i, I think i think maybe talking over each other a little bit more than normal i mean yeah, i'm sure we do that normal but there's a little, little delay so a little bit of that maybe yeah, but a little quality wise it sounds good yeah we did a podcast last night for the patrons on the mitch unfiltered patreon site which was a instant reaction to the Seahawks' loss to the Rams. Yeah. About 30 or 45 minutes after the final, the final buzzer, if you want to call it that, the final gun, we got together the same way, and we did a, a post-mortem right off, the, right off the top, just our thoughts right off the top. And the bad thing about that is it's raw – it's instant, it's kind of disheveled, unorganized, and it's reactionary. And the good thing about that podcast is it's raw, it's instant, <laughs> it's kind of disheveled, and it's re- – no, I mean that. I mean – Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it's kind of the glory of doing it right after the game, but it's also not very organized and not really – I mean, it's just our first blush opinions and we just – we just blah, right? We just blob all the whole time. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. I didn't even get to my my game notes about plays and good play. I, it just that's all I could think about was well, Russell Wilson for one, the the coaching for another. You you yeah. went hard on those two, and then Chris Carson for some reason, and it's still bothering me. I sent out a tweet yesterday that said I know he was banged up a bit, but him averaging twelve carries a game this season just isn't sitting right with me. And I did the math. If he gets twenty carries a game, let's say he plays all sixteen, which is a stretch for him. You know what? He averaged 4.8 yards. That's 1,500 yards. He's a 1,500-yard rusher talent-wise, I think. Right. And I, th- I think some team's going to get a hell of a running back next season, and yeah, I'm already gonna, bummed about it. It's not going to be here. You've, <laughs> no, seen the la- you've seen the last of Seattle Seahawk Chris Carson. And and what I said to you uh, last night when we did the, the instant reaction podcast for the patrons, I'll say to you again. I think when you when you bring up that topic, it's really two topics, and you've got to differentiate between what you what you're frustrated with. Are yeah. you are you frustrated that the Seahawks don't run the ball more often, 
or are you frustrated that they're giving the ball game after game to, to people not named Chris Carson when they do run the ball? Those are two I, different questions. But it can be both. Maybe they can give him the ball more and they can run the ball more. I mean, you think how, they throw many, too much? Because I remember a year or two ago, we were all saying the exact opposite. They run the ball too much. They've got this quarterback. They pay 35 or $40 million a year, and they don't let him cook. They don't let him throw. He throws less yeah. than every other great quarterback in the league. They got to let him. They got to open up the offense. Now you're saying, if you're saying what I think you're saying, you're saying the opposite. You want him to run more and throw less. But is, is opening up the offense, does that mean let him throw more or just be more creative with the game plan? I don't know that let Russ cook meant more pass attempts. People wanted him to throw. He was not throwing the ball as much as any of the premier quarterbacks in the league. This is okay. three. This is three, four, five years ago. They wanted them to open up the offense and let him throw. They were running the ball on first and second, and he was managing the. Remember, they all said, "Oh, he's the most. He's the highest paid game manager of anybody in the yeah. NFL." So yeah. I just want to understand. See, my my bitch, my moan, my complaint coming into this week was. They're trying to keep him healthy so when they do run, I don't think that their run-pass ratio is bad. I just don't like the fact that guys named Hyde and Dallas and Homer and who am I missing, Collins and yeah. and Penny. Penny. Yeah. I, I, I don't want guys like when they do run the ball, I want 32 to run it. That's yeah. been my, my big gripe, that he takes himself off the field and they take him off the field for series after series, and I didn't feel like they did that on Saturday. I, that's not one of my big gripes of Saturday. Yeah, Saturday might not be a great example because they were behind and they had to throw and do all that, but just for the season, just 12 carries a, a game. I was looking at um, uh, uh, Henry for the Titans. He got it 24 carries a game. I mean, no wonder he got to 2,000 yards, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Twi- that's like double. He got yeah. a double. And is he is he twice the player that Chris Carson is? He might be better. No, but the question then becomes, what about their receivers versus the Seahawks wide receivers? What about their yeah. quarterback versus the Seahawks quarterback? You know, you got to look at the yeah. entire offense. But, right, right. but, but okay, so what we, what we gain by waiting a, a night later to do episode 125 is I'm able to kind of organize my thoughts so that we don't ramble on for an hour and a half about the same thing like we did last night. <laughs> so I've organized my thoughts to tell you how I feel about Saturday night, and maybe you have, and maybe you haven't, and I get your get your thoughts. Essentially, here's my opinion of the Seahawks on Saturday night. And anybody who follows me on Twitter, Mitch underscore Seattle, which is the little underline, not the dash, um, mm-hmm. knows this because I've, I've kind of beaten a dead horse. I feel as a general opinion that Saturday night was the most unprepared, poorly coached game I've seen in the Pete Carroll era, in particular on offense. I, I think that pretty much tells you how I feel. On one, he let me tell you how lopsided the coaching was in that game on Saturday in terms of preparation and uh, adjustments during the game and calling of the game. On one sideline hotshot, you had Sean McVay and his staff, correct? Yep. figuring out how to completely ditch a game plan that they had coming in with an undrafted, small running quarterback out of the AAF or whatever the hell that was, the yeah. hot shots. That's right. Making his second start, they had to midstream throw the entire game plan out the, the window and try to then figure out how do we win a game with a dude that had three pins surgically placed into his throwing thumb 11 days earlier. How are we going to do this? 
And, and, and that's what was happening on the other side. How do I protect him, Jared Goff, and do enough offensively to win? That's what they were doing on one side and doing it successfully. While at the other, at the same identical time, on the other sideline, no game plan to move Russell Wilson out of the pocket, away from number 99 and the number one defense. No in-game adjustments to get Wilson out on the perimeter to throw the ball. Chris Carson is not on the field on a critical third and short at the end of the half. Do you remember that play? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, he's not on the field, and they hand the ball to, I think it was Hyde, and they don't get the first Hyde, down, yeah. and, they have to, and they have to punt. They don't have their rough and tumble guy who's going to get that first down. They don't have the right personnel on the field. He has three minutes to make a critical fourth down decision and play call late in the game, and what happens? Three minutes in in total time with an injured player on the field. The Seahawks are down 10. They're facing fourth and one. They've got to go for it. They've got to come up with a play call, and they get a, a free timeout because one of their players, one of their offensive linemen are on the field. So they get three minutes. I think Brady Henderson said two and a half minutes of real time to make yeah. their decision and get organized and get to the line, and what happens? Well, they had the, the false start, the because they can, penalty. Because they, that's right. They can't get there yeah. in time, then they're rushed, yep. and then they get a false start, and now it's fourth and six, and they have to punt, right? Yep. He's challenging that the guy went over the line of scrimmage, Jared Goff, on a big play, when he was a yard or a yard and a half in front of the line of scrimmage and wasting a timeout. All of these things are happening on one sideline, while on the other sideline, Sean McVay and his staff are winning a football game. This was like... Mitch Levy, the coach of a Bo- Bellevue Boys and Girls Club basketball team, <laughs> coaching against Mike Shashevsky, Coach K of Duke. That's what this was. <laughs> now, that bad. I mean, that's how bad it was. It, <laughs> okay. it was. it was an absolute meltdown from a coaching standpoint. Now, I, I, I always feel like I have to say the prerequisite things, even though this is unfiltered, and that is Pete Carroll, Probably the most successful and greatest coach in Seattle sports history, right? Yep. Brought a Super Bowl, brought another Super Bowl appearance, has done amazing things and has brought all of our lives and all of our families a lot of joy. And That's I right. tip my hat to that. And that, can, and that can not, not ever be forgotten and not ever be ignored. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't humiliated from a coaching perspective on Saturday. And that doesn't mean that he and his coaching staff and Brian Schottenheimer aren't the biggest reason and maybe the only reason why the Seahawks are sitting out of another playoffs in round one after losing at home to the Rams. We talked about Russell potentially getting caught by father time. I don't know if he is or isn't, but does there come a time when a coach is just past his prime? I mean, maybe is that is it fair to think that that's because yeah. I, I went back and looked at their last three playoff wins since the Patriot Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And it's really not that impressive. It was at Minnesota, the missed field goal game. They won 10-9. Could easily uh, home versus the Lions in 2016, and then at Philadelphia last year with with Josh McCown as the starting quarterback, they barely won 17-9. So since that Patriots Super Bowl, they really haven't been that impressive in the playoffs. I think the glory of the Carroll era is more since since the Super Bowl. Now you're asking me since the Super Bowl. Yeah, since the one they lost, the Patriot right. one. I think the glory of the Carroll era is not that they've won one playoff game every year, I think the glory is that they've gotten to the playoffs just about every year. 
Yeah. So I think if you if you are writing the resume of Pete Carroll, I think you would headline it not that they won each one of those games because when you do, when you look at those games, you come up with the conclusion you just did. But I, I, you got to you got to give him props for ten wins, eleven wins, twelve wins every single year, either a okay. division title or a wild card. That's not easy to do. But but I would say this, and I said this to you last night on the uh, the Patron Show. I'll repeat a couple things that I said last night. I don't want to repeat it all because the patrons have already heard it. Um, number one, they were kind of a illegitimate 12-win team this year. I remember when the schedule first came out and everybody laughed at me because I went ahead and I said, wow, look at this. Look at this schedule. This schedule, this is a, a really doable schedule. This could be a very easy schedule, which is the worst thing you can do because no one really knows when the schedule comes out who's going to be good and who's not going to be good. That's right. Right? Yeah, we, but, we had the Niners going to the Super Bowl. Right. So, you, well, yeah, you never know. You never know. You never know. Yeah. So, but I saw that schedule right away and I thought, oh, boy, this could really be one of those years that they they feast on a schedule. And as it turns out, and I'm not patting myself on the back because I'm wrong way more times than I'm right. As it turns out, that's exactly what happened. They feasted on a crap sandwich schedule, yeah. in particular, the last six weeks. Plus, they won the first four or five games, most of them by a point or two at the very, very end against Less than stellar opponents. And then they played six lousy opponents to end the season, save the Rams game in week 16. So they really built up a 12-win team that might have been a little cheesy, a little cheap. That's the first thing that I will bring to you that I brought to you last night. The second thing is on the Russell Wilson. You just asked a question, and we're going to explore this on the Seahawks note table, a lot of this stuff, so we don't have to. We don't have a harp on it now. We can get to the other stuff segment with your stuff in, as well. Russell Wilson... That that topic is a very interesting topic. I don't know what the answer is. My gut is, is he's not shot. Is that father time? A lot of people are asking, has father time caught up with him? Have all yeah. the hits? Remember, he's been hit more in the last 10 years than any quarterback in the NFL for two reasons, for three reasons. Number one, he's played in every game since he's come up. Right, He's not missed a game. He's the most durable quarterback in the NFL. So he's yeah. always in there. That's one reason. Number two is he's had bad offensive lines over the years, although this one I think was a little better despite its dismal performance on Saturday night. He's had bad offensive lines over the years. That's number two. And number three, he holds the ball longer than just about every quarterback in the league. So you put those three together, plays every game, some poor offensive lines, holds the ball too long. He has been physically really, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Physically handled more than any other quarterback. He's taken a lot of physical punishment more yeah. than any other quarterback in the NFL over the next nine. So the question has become, is he shot? Not shot, but is he on the opposite side? Is he on the regressive side of the mountain? Is he, he starting his to best come days? Down? Has it, has yeah. the best days? And I don't. That's a really interesting question that we can explore the entire off season. I don't know the answer to that. My hunch is he's not, because I still saw him for the first five or six games play at an unbelievable clip. Yep. And I also saw him in the last six games, which I'm going to share with you the numbers I shared with you last night for the audience that doesn't pay the five bucks. He also, he also, even during the final five or six games, he makes these plays, these long throws. He makes these incredible plays that show you the glimpses of the great Russell Wilson. So I'm not sure that I, I think that the problem with number three is that he's shot. But... 
the conversation is a valid one, and here's why. After six games hotshot of the 2020 season, he had a passer rating of about 120. Now, let me tell you what that means for people who don't know. The best passer rating possible is 158.3. A really, 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 really terrific passer rating, at least back in the day, was 100. There were very few guys that, over the course of a career, would have over 100 passer rating, okay? Hmm. Over a career. He had about a 120 after five or six. He was, he was the unanimous most valuable player after five or six games. Okay? That's right. Okay. That was his pass rating, 120. In the last six games, what I told you on the podcast last night, in the last six games, he had a passer rating of 88.4. So he went from, in the first six games, Aaron mm. Rodgers, he went from being the best of the best to in the last six games being an 88.4, which is one of the worst starting quarterbacks in the league in the last six games. And then furthermore, if you take out the four-touchdown performance against the Jets, okay, yeah, I guess you can't really do that, but if you, they were 0-13. He played right. an 0-13 team. That performance against the Jets, you take that out, and he goes from an 88 to an 81. Yeah. He's an 81 rated quarterback when he was a 120 the first 6 weeks. Let me tell you who's an 81 quarterback just to make sure you understand. Okay. When I say you, I don't mean you. I mean you. I mean everybody. <laughs> Cam Newton. Nick Foles, not good enough to be a starter on his team. Nick Mullins, not good enough to be a starter when everybody's healthy on his team. Daniel Jones. Tua, who would have been lifted for Ryan Fitzpatrick if Fitzpatrick was healthy for the playoffs or for the last game of the season in Week 17. That's who Russell Wilson was the last six games. He was one of the worst starting quarterbacks statistically in the NFL the last six games, including the playoff game when it mattered most on Saturday night. So I guess what I'm saying is the conversation is a fair one. I'm just not sure what the answers are. I went back and looked at week nine against the Bills because it seemed like that. Well, first of all, that was the last time he threw for 300 yards was November 8th, which I thought was insane. Wow. Wow. But in, in that Bills game, he got sacked five times and had 11 QB hits. And one of those sacks was a blind side where he took a good shot and he fumbled and the whole thing. And I'm just one. I, I'm looking for answers like everyone else. I'm wondering, maybe was that the game that did it to him? Because like I said, he didn't throw for 300 yards the rest of the year after that Bills game. Something I think might happen to him. I don't know if it was the Bills game. I'm just, I'm grasping at something. He, he had a career high in, in interceptions. He had 11 as a rookie. He had 14 yeah. this year. What's what's going on? Now, early in the year, I said he, maybe he's pressing because he knows the defense sucks. He's got to make, make plays. But all right, the defense is good now. So now <laughs> that doesn't hold water. So now what? Well, the, the only thing that you can do from a mathematical sense or a common sense standpoint, which is the way I kind of approach these types of conversations, fairly or unfairly, is kind of isolate the variables. In other words, ask the question, what was different around him between the start and the finish? And the problem is there wasn't a lot different. Was DK Metcalf healthy the last six games? Yes, he sure. was. Yeah. Was Tyler Lockett healthy the last six games? Yes, he was. Was Chris Carson healthy, healthy the last six games? Yes, he was. Were any of them playing poor football? None of them. One guy got to 100 receptions. The other guy broke Steve Largent's record. And Chris Carson, every time they gave him the ball, was tough. He didn't even fumble. Remember, they used to call Chris Carson the fumbler. How many times did he really even fumble this year? He didn't yeah, fumble. He didn't fumble. Yeah. So to, to isolate the variables around him, 
The defense was better, so you can't say that he he felt like he had to do too much. Yep. The, the, the 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 one I think the one exploration is the system, the offensive philosophy. Now, yeah, the offensive line is important too. Yeah, they lost a couple guys on the offensive line for a period of time there. The right tackle, which was a setback. The left guard, I don't think was much going from one guy to the other. Could they improve the offensive line? Yeah. But I thought in, in, in total, the offensive line was actually better this year than it was in the previous couple. So what is the problem with the pass game? Is the quarterback shot or is there a systematic, a philosophical issue with the way they're approaching these games and more important and here's where I like to leave it at at for right now more important is there an inability by this coaching staff to adjust you know football like everything else is a game of chess when they were going great for six games did you not expect defenses to say okay let's see what they're doing so great we're going to make some adjustments here you know, DK Metcalf yeah. has come out of the woodworks and become one of the great receivers in the in the in the entire NFL. We're going to make adjustments. We're going to let we're going to he's going to see something different. We're going to put Jalen Ramsey on him every every single. We're going to do some things to try to counteract what they do. The question then is, how did the Seahawks react to that? Was it that number three is no good anymore? All of a sudden, he goes from being great to no good, or do the Seahawks have a fundamental problem in that building? with strategy and in-game adjustments to be able to counteract what defenses are doing to them. I'll leave it at that. I don't know how to answer that. My suspicion is a resounding yes. Yeah. That they've got an, a, 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 a systematic, philosophical offensive issue in that building. That's what I think. But I'm not smart enough football-wise to be able to tell you, here's what's happening, if that when, makes when sense. You li- you listed off who he has in the back. He's got Chris Carson, DK Metcalf, and Lockett. What quarterback wouldn't want those three around him, right? I don't think anybody's got a better. I, I, mean, I don't really, think anybody's got a better three. I don't think so. Even though you think Tyler Lockett's overrated, I, I <laughs> well, don't. How do you look on Saturday? <laughs> well, not where, where, where was he? He had a great left-handed catch at the beginning. I don't. He uh, sure did. Yeah. Did, he, did he go to the locker room after the first quarter? I think he had a sandwich. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. But that's a hell of a threesome to, yeah. to, to give a quarterback, and it's a shame sure that is. they're not still playing. Sure he is. Three guests. I think you're going to enjoy each and every one. Actually, it's four guests. The Seahawks no table first. If you want to hear more about this, they are terrific. They really have a great chemistry, Joe Fan and Brady Henderson. And then we'll have the uh, the director of the new Tiger Woods documentary on HBO, followed by an educational segment on Bitcoin on episode 125. My buddy Dapper Dan Black, president of Zeke's Pizza, is back on, of course, the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Happy New Year, Dan. Hey, thanks, Mitch. Happy New Year to you. I like the new nickname. <laughs> I got to tell you that the family went to the Woodland Park Zoo the other night to see the Wild Lanterns exhibit, and we stopped at the Finney location, ordered some chopped salads, brought it with us, some Zeke's Pizza. Fantastic. Fantastic spot. Yeah, Finney's busy right now because of the, all the action at the zoo. You're doing what a lot of families are doing right now, and... I love the chopped salad, too, and I like the Finney location, too, because it's we're mainly doing takeout and delivery. Finney is one of the locations that has outdoor seating on the deck with heaters and tents and stuff, so it's a good location right now. What's the good news? I hear there's some exciting news this first week of January for Zeke's Pizza. Yeah, we've got a restaurant opening in Kenmore this 
this week on Thursday. And so we're excited about that. We've been talking about all the franchises that we have being built and Kenmore is the first one out of the gate here. And so, yeah, nice. we're, we're looking forward to uh, serving some pizza and beer up there this week. Where is it exactly, Dan? It is right across from City Hall, right in the center of Kenmore. And uh, it's going to be a full-on pizza pub focused on takeout and delivery to start. But once COVID's over, there's, there'll be a nice craft beer bar in there and spirits and, and all that stuff. Are you starting the year strong? How is takeout and delivery? It is strong. A little bit of dining room business, like I say, places where we have outdoor seating. But it's it's about takeout, delivery, and beer delivery right now. And that's it's strong like it has been during COVID. And we're going to keep going with it. Use the Zeke's Pizza app like the Levy family does. You can also find them at Zeke'sPizza.com. Homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Watch out here. Picked. Williams. Touchdown Rams. Second down and 14 now. Wilson is chased. Throws it up for grabs. He's got Metcalf. Touchdown Seattle. Akers. A one-man gang for the touchdown. Bob Capes has Woods. Touchdown Rams. Ten-game home winning streak in the playoffs is snapped for the Seahawks by their divisional rival, the Rams, who were impressive here today. Listen, we ended up went 12 and four in the regular season, won the NFC West, and and, uh, and then we get here in the playoffs and. We didn't. We didn't play our best football. We didn't across the board. You know, we didn't feel like we, we really got going. I think that we really got the tempo going late in the fourth there, um, and we moved the ball really well uh, up and down the field. Well, abrupt is the word. It's normally reserved for patrons, but time for a special Seahawks no table. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks Insider, Joe Fan, NBC Sports Northwest, boys. Brady, I'm going to ask you first. Do you know who Aesop was? Aesop of Aesop's Fables? Yes, Aesop of Aesop. you know who he was? Yeah. Who was he? He's the fable guy. <laughs> guy with all the fables. <laughs> Joe, do you know who Aesop is? I was going to guess he's a rapper. So. <laughs> Aesop, as Brady will tell you, was a slave and storyteller in ancient Greece between 620 and 564 BCE. Give or take a year or two. Give or take a no, year. And you know, you know what he said, Brady? What's that? He was the first person to say, be careful what you wish for. Seahawk fans, the 12th man, wanted the Rams after what they saw in week 16. They wanted the Rams in the first round of the playoffs. And now, Brady Henderson, they will be watching the Rams in Green Bay next week i'll just throw the ball to you and then to joe first blush at what happened on sunday or saturday between the seahawks and the rams their offensive line got manhandled that was probably the first thing that jumps to mind and it seemed like they were calling plays as though they could protect and they could not protect even when aaron donald went out of the game for much of the second half with whatever injury he was dealing with so that was just one of many many disappointing aspects of that game is yeah you catch a break with donald going out and you still can't block him five sacks uh including two when he was off the field according to our stats department wilson was pressured on 50 percent of his dropbacks which is a a massive massive number and so even as their offense was kind of scuffling over the second half of the season 
protection wasn't always the big problem there. I think by and large, they protected okay, save for some games, but it just was not there. I think it was a failure uh, of protection, a failure of game planning, and it's hard to look at this season. I don't think you look at it as a failure. You can't call it a failure when you win 12 games, win the Mm -hmm. NFC West. But you can't call it a success when you get bounced in the first round of the playoffs. I see Joe smiling. What do you call it, then? I I think Joe was going to use the F word, the failure word. Go ahead, Joe. Do you agree with Brady? There are a ton of F words you could use (laughs) in regard to that performance on Saturday. I mean, it was embarrassing from top to bottom. Comprehensively a complete egg. It was a comprehensive blunder team-wide. I mean, everything in that game was dictated by the Rams, and they were absolutely whooped. It was an inexcusable performance. You look at this, the warning signs that led up to this game, especially offensively with the regression we saw for most of the second half of the season, to where none of what happened on Saturday should have been surprising to anybody. Um, and, and yet we were told at every turn that Pete Carroll wasn't concerned about the offense. It's no big deal. Well... I understand that he's always going to portray optimism, but I do think that when you are still able to get wins, even by narrow margins, it's able to subconsciously reduce the level of urgency you might feel in terms of where you need to improve throughout a season. And you heard that with every player we talked to on Sunday and and Pete Carroll on Saturday expressing the disbelief that the season is over because they didn't see this thing getting to where it is now and being over. K.J. Wright said this was the best chance at making a Super Bowl since 2014. And I think what makes this season different is that you look at where hope lies going into an offseason and and really an uncertain offseason. You have to hope the pieces are in place because the Seahawks are going to be thin on cap space, thin on draft capital. And the big question, the big mystery that the Seahawks go into the offseason with is what on earth happened to Russell Wilson? Because you can put blame on Pete Carroll and you can put blame on the defense for the first half of the season. You can put blame on Brian Schottenheimer for dubious play calls and game planning and all of that. But Russell Wilson's got the keys to the Seahawks offense in year nine as much as any quarterback in the NFL. This is very much on him as well. And his play undoubtedly, unquestionably regressed as the season went on. And we hadn't seen that, not in that sort of stretch, not to that degree from Russell Wilson. And so I do think there is a lot of concern going into this offseason, maybe comparatively speaking to after last year's loss to the Rams and other years previous. Yeah, the, the, the egg that they laid on Saturday offensively, it was not surprising in the sense that Joe's right. We had totally seen this coming for a couple months now. But I think in, in a way, the way that it happened was surprising to me in the sense that what, what were we talking about, you know, in the no table previewing that game? One of the things we said was they've got their offensive line healthy. They've got all five starters back on their offensive line. You thought that they would have a better time against the Rams than they did the previous time two weeks ago when they allowed five sacks. And you would especially think that with Aaron Donald, the best player on the planet, and the biggest piece of that pass rush missing much of the second half of that game. And so that was the element of it to me that was surprising, but overall not surprising based on what we've seen. And I agree with Joe. I think the biggest question the Seahawks need to answer offensively this offseason is what happened. They need a clear they need a clear answer to that question because that it's going to dictate whether the improvements you need to make are more about personnel. And I think they could maybe they, they could benefit from an upgrade on the offensive line, an upgrade at tight end. But if the answer is they need to coach better and they need to do a better job of recognizing what's going on and adjusting, then that's a matter of the coaching staff. And 
then that's a whole separate conversation. Well, let's talk about the coaching staff, and I'll underscore something that Joe said. Brady, you tell me if this is an overreaction. I guess, Joe, you're the one who does this for a living, overreaction. I call this the worst coaching job in terms of preparation, offensive strategy, in-game adjustments, play calling. The Seahawks' sideline was put to shame by the Rams' coaching staff. On one side, you had a guy who had to completely scrap his game plan the second series into the game from a short running quarterback, undrafted running quarterback making his second start, to a guy with three pins in his thumb, his throwing thumb, and figure out a way to win on the road in that situation. On the flip side, you've got a coaching staff not moving Russell Wilson away from number 99, not figuring out a way to get play calls in on fourth down, not having Chris Carson on the field on third and short at the end of the half in a big moment, not challenging, not making the right decision on challenges and wasting timeouts. I mean, it was to me, and I know that Pete Carroll may end up in the, in the Hall of Fame someday and they deserve a lot of credit, but to me, it was a colossal meltdown and failure on the coaching staff. Is that too much, Brady? No, I don't think so. I mean, the... The just the the fourth down blunder alone. I mean, we could t- we could do a whole segment on that because it's not the first time we've seen clock mismanagement in in critical situation. Go back to week 17 last year when the NFC Championship was on the line against the 49ers. You know they were late getting I think a substitution in Marshawn Lynch in, and it re- was really costly there. And Carroll made the point that you know in in this instance punting was a consideration. So the fact that they took the penalty and punted it. it he sort of excused it that way in a sense, but I, it, either way, I don't think you can excuse that. It, it's still a critical situation. I went back and watched that whole sequence. They had over two minutes and 20 seconds between when the, the previous play ended and when they had to get the ball off on fourth and one. Over two minutes and 20 seconds, and it wasn't like the play clock you know, was going to restart at four seconds and they had to rush up to the line. The play clock was at 22 seconds, so they know they knew during that entire stoppage that once the play clock started going, they had 22 seconds to get that playoff. I, I, it's, I can't fathom how you take that long to get a play in. Carroll said that you know there was a bit of a mea culpa there. He said uh, that he sort of got involved in the discussion of what play they were going to run, and that uh, kind of gummed up the works a little bit. It's just it's inexcusable to do that in a situation like that. It was a comprehensive embarrassment across the board. Brandon Staley ran circles around Brian Schottenheimer. The Rams dictated every part of that entire game. Brady touched on it a bunch. I won't harp on it more unless we want to go down this. But to me, if I'm a Seahawks fan watching that game at home, I took my remote and I threw it against the TV watching that fourth down play. I just, it's inexcusable. And it's unfathomable how it continues to happen to this team. And then from there, my TV's already broken. And then it goes out the window when I hear Pete Carroll try to justify it as, well, there's a lot of clock management situations. So you don't ask about it when it goes well. It's just one play. Well, it's not just one play. Your season's on the line. You're down by 10 points. And you have the football and a chance to keep the football. And when you admit to say, yeah, I see the play clock running down, I just didn't think we needed a timeout because I was fine punting. It just really goes to show you when you're looking at, at Pete Carroll and his flaws and you're hoping he changes his stripes at some point, there is just an element of who he is that isn't going to change. And if you're the Seahawks, you have to, learn, you have to figure out whether you are, are going to live with that and be fine with that 
given the other benefits that he brings is a very good coach, arguably the best in, in Seattle sports history. But it's like Russell Wilson taking a bunch of sacks. You got to live with that if you're going to get the amazing off script or off schedule touchdowns. That is Pete Carroll's Achilles heel. And there are a couple of them. But it was like mind numbing for me to listen to him try and talk this out without just saying flat out, it was inexcusable. That can't happen. That's on me. It just the rationale even beginning to go there was bizarre. And to me, the entire game can be boiled down to that point of what you said, Mitch, and you laid it out so eloquently. They weren't prepared. They didn't execute. They didn't adjust. All of it was a failure, and it was all embodied in that one moment where, as Brady said, you had two minutes and 30 seconds to figure out a play, your most important play call of the game, and you just say, eh, whatever, we'll punt it. We'll year. punt the possession. Most important play call of the year, not just of the game, of the year. Brady, go ahead. Yeah, and, and you know we're talking about the offense, and rightfully so. The, the Seahawks lost this game more because of their offense than their defense. Let's make no mistake about that. But their defense also, that, that was not the same defense that we had seen. You know, they, they were rushing. They were getting after the quarterback. That was maybe the one thing that we have seen them do, but didn't force a takeaway. You know, they went into that game knowing that the Rams were going to run the ball a lot, given their quarterback situation. And that was the same, regardless of whether, you know, John Wolford would have stayed in that game or, uh, or whether Goff replaced him early in the game, which is what happened. And, you know, the yards per carry average was, was fine, but they allowed 132 yards to Cam Akers. And so I think as much as we're going to talk about the defense or the offense, and as much as everybody is focusing uh, on the play calling and the fact that they're offense continue to struggle in that game I think it's it's worth acknowledging that their defense could have done a little bit more in that game given the quarterback situation I think that the three of us will get back together for another Seahawks no table later in the week for the patrons to talk about where they go from here so let's stay on the game for just a, a few more moments and then I'll let you guys go Brady Henderson ESPN.com and of course Joe Fan, NBC Sports Northwest Brady I know that I've cried to you before I'm going to cry to you again Russell Wilson is at his best. This offense is at his best when Russell Wilson is getting to the perimeter on pass plays, when he's getting away from the giants of the offensive line and the giants of the defensive line, and he's maybe able to ad-lib a little bit, run pass on the edge. When they design those fake pitches and then he rolls or the outstretched arm to hand it to Chris Carson and then he turns and rolls, that's when they're at their best. They called 36 pass plays on Saturday not one time not one time did he in a designed manner roll to his right or roll to his left the only time he went to his right or his left was when he was scrambling from the pocket they were all five and seven step drops right in the middle and then he says to Joe Fan after the game when Joe asked the question the appropriate question well why is it that everybody can adjust to you and you guys don't seem to be able to adjust to everybody else the answer was because they have 99, and I don't, I'm don't. i going to paraphrase here. They've got Aaron Donald. He wrecks us, and he wrecks everybody else in the NFL. Well, if he wrecks you, then why wouldn't you at times move, move your quarterback who's mobile away from him? Design ways to move him away from him. And yet I'm watching the immobile Jared Goff. I can mention a few plays you may or may not remember. There was one late, late, late in the game when they needed a stop. The Seahawks needed a stop, and he very simply – play action to his running back and then he rolled to his right and then he threw it to the running back I don't know if you remember that for about 10 or 11 yards just there at the end when they needed a first down even even Jared Goff the immobile one 
there are plays coming in from the Rams' sideline where they are moving the pocket and moving him on design away from the rush. How can uh, Schottenheimer call a game against the Rams where they fear the Rams in, in 99 and yet not move Russell Wilson? Explain that to me. I don't know if I have a good explanation. No, it's – I mean, you, you've been on that point for a while now about the Seahawks needing to get him out of pocket. Maybe my one theory is, you know, you're talking about long-developing play-action plays, and maybe their mindset is, well, we've got to get the run game going because analytics people would tell you that this is a fallacy. But in their minds, maybe they're thinking, well, we've got to get our running game going in order for those play-action fakes to be effective. And, you've, you know, that's the whole idea of – you know, your play action is not going to work unless you establish the run. So maybe that's why sometimes you don't see those plays uh, until later in games when, when you're wondering, okay, why aren't they doing this, you know, earlier in the game? Because they do seem to work so well. The other point of contention I have with just the design of the offense, it's it's not just that. It's It, it really seems, and this is anecdotally, this is this is not statistically speak. I don't, I don't have, like, numbers, solid numbers to back this up necessarily. But it's just hard for me to picture Russell Wilson – taking a five-step drop, planting his back foot, and then throwing the ball in rhythm. You just don't – it seems like you don't see them do that very often. And that's exactly what you need to do when your quarterback doesn't have time to throw. I mentioned earlier that it felt like they were calling plays throughout that game as though they could protect Wilson, and it was pretty clear that they couldn't. And I don't know if, if some of that is on the quarterback trying too hard to extend plays, which we've talked about, or if that's more of a function of the play calling and those plays not being designed to get the ball out in rhythm. You just don't see Wilson very often, it seems like, hit that back foot and then fire the ball in rhythm. And I know Joe wants to get in here, Joe, but this also brings up another thing that we talk about seemingly after every loss and that is the whole notion of getting into the halftime locker room and saying, this isn't working. This is not working. What we just tried, let's do something different, boys. Let's try to change this. And, and maybe it is because they come back in the second half for the last five, ten years. They've been coming back in second half comebacks so often that they don't figure that they have to make adjustments. I don't know, Joe. Why not change if the thing's not working? Why ram your head into the wall? I don't get it. It's a perfect segue because what I was going to bring up is how my mind goes back to the Giants game with that inexplicable loss to the Giants at home where you only score 10 points offensively and that loss costs you the number one, the only reason you are playing on wild card weekend instead of having the weekend off is because you lost to Colt McCoy and the Giants because you could only score 10 points against that defense. And the next week, you hear from Brian Schottenheimer and others, you know, you look back and you recognize you had a bad game plan and realize you probably should have adjusted sooner. You appreciate the candor and honesty, but you're like, everyone saw it. So why couldn't they in the moment? And so then you see this happen again, right? After the Giants game, you said, well, you hope they learned their lesson. But then this game happens, and it's so obvious and evident that they didn't learn their lesson, or they're just incapable of doing so against a standout opponent. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, to me, it was the Giants game all over again okay. in that regard. All right, we've got a billion things we need to touch on. And again, a lot of this will be 
this week when we're able to get together again for the patrons, our next uh, Seahawks note table, like free agents and what they should do and who they should keep and what do they need to do to get better when they don't have all the equity in the draft anymore because they traded for Jamal Adams and how much should they pay Jamal Adams and what about KJ and all these different questions. There's a million questions that we can talk about on a nice, juicy Seahawks note table later in the week for the patrons. Let's end this one and talk about number three. We've all talked ad nauseum about the fact that their passing game was broken the last half of the year. And so my question to you guys is, how much of this is about number three? The debate is, is difficult because he's meant so much to this team, this organization, and this city from a community sense. I don't know whether this is on him or not, but I'll share with you guys the facts that I, that I dug up yesterday or dug up on Saturday of the game. In the first six games of the year, guys, and this is not ESPN stat research. Theirs, as somebody on ESPN Sports Center tells me every night, theirs is better than mine. But this, this is Mitch Levy. The first six games of the year, Russell Wilson was like a 120 quarterback rated, passer rated quarterback, number one in the league. The last six games that they played, he was an 88.4. And if you take the four-touchdown performance away against the 0-13 Jets in his last six games, he's an 81. We're talking about him being Aaron Rodgers the first six weeks and an 81 or 88. I looked it up. That's Cam Newton. That's Nick Foles. That's Nick Mullins. That's Daniel Jones. That's Tua. That's the kind of quarterback that Russell Wilson was the last five or six games. So my question to both of you is, how much of this is about have the hits piled up and taken its toll? Is the age taking its toll? Or is this a systematic problem and he's still very capable of being one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL? Brady, start with you. Yeah, I thought Pete Carroll shed a, a little bit of light on that issue after the game when he was talking about, you know, somebody asked him about uh, just the, the regression of the offense from midseason after it was on fire. And he made the point that he felt like they didn't do a good enough job of adjusting how defenses started adjusting in them and defenses started playing them to take away the deep ball with after all the success the Seahawks had in that and they were giving them shorter you know underneath intermediate stuff and the Seahawks were still being too aggressive and trying to find the deep stuff and now what was not clear what I what I need to get clarity from Pete on that is is he talking about their overall offensive approach? Were they going into games still insistent on finding that deep stuff? Or was that more of an issue of Wilson not taking what defenses were giving him in the moments? And maybe it was a combination of both, but it makes perfect sense. That's what you would expect defenses to do after all the success the Seahawks had early in the season. And uh, as we all know, as Joe has talked about, this is a coaching staff that has, seems to have issues for whatever reason in adjusting whether it's in games or in seasons and so that that's i think the question they have to ask is or they have to answer to themselves is why weren't they able to adjust if that was on the coaching staff is that what if that was more of a, of a coaching game plan issue why and if it's on wilson then you need to figure out how to how to get it in his head that he's going to take what defenses are giving him i think also you know i don't think wilson is He's 32 years old. He keeps himself in phenomenal shape. I don't think this is a matter of Wilson being broken. But what's clear is that 
he's not as quick as he was early in his career, and he he's not as able to escape some of those sacks that he was earlier in his career. And I think there's a balance that he's got to find of, look, we talk about this all the time about you have to take the bad with the good with him extending plays uh, because he's going to create a lot of magic in doing that. But he just doesn't see, you know, some of those sacks, it just, he's not able to escape them like he used to. I'm so happy that you brought up the quote from Carroll saying that now he finally admits we didn't adjust very well over the second half of the season when, we talked about it on the no table after the Washington game where I asked just a simple question of you didn't score over the last 28 minutes. Are you worried about that at all? Or did you just tip your cap to Washington? And he got fierce in his defense of, oh, you guys do that. You guys find the negatives. I ain't worried about a thing. And was I get like you don't want to sound like you are pressing the panic button, but to be so emphatic in a rebuttal to it, I thought was surprised me in the moment. Now, even looking back, it's like, OK, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. To answer your question, Russell Wilson, I think, is broken to a degree. Is it broken beyond all repair? No. He's been too good over the course of eight and a half seasons to to just say, write him off and say the Seahawks need a new quarterback. But he took a nosedive in the second half. Last eight games, only one game over 260 yards. I think there were times where he looked far more timid and gun shy than he did or has most of his career. But obviously in the beginning of the season, I don't know if he was rattled from the turnovers to where he, he didn't feel comfortable with throws that seemed to be right in front of him. Those short and intermediate, maybe some more of the on time stuff. Maybe he, he forego or he forwent. How do you say that? I don't know. But you get what I'm saying? Yep. Those options because he thought he could get something bigger and it just never materialized time and time again. And I also don't want to just boil it down and oversimplify what happened with Russ, but there is no question a hefty share of the blame if you're creating a pie chart is on his shoulders because this team was always going to go as far as number three took it. He failed that team pretty miserably, in my opinion. That's enough for episode 125. What you just heard is the Seahawks note table. We do it all year long for the patrons, for the Mitch Unfiltered patrons. The three of us will be back. We'll release another show this week for just the patrons on Friday. That's Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, who has been so kind to me since I started this Mitch Unfiltered podcast. I am incredibly appreciative to Brady. Follow him on Twitter. Watch his work on ESPN.com. Nobody does it better. And Joe Fan, my guy from NBC Sports Northwest, or as other people know him as, Becky's Kid, joining us as well. Great job on Twitter. If you, if you want to follow the pulse of the Seahawks, these are the two guys to follow all season and all off-season long. Thank you guys for all that you've done. We'll talk this week on the Seahawks Note Table for the patron Joe Fan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Mitch. Thank you. And Brady, you're the best. Thanks, Mitch. Really enjoyed doing this. Thanks for having us. Joining us on Mitch Unfiltered, the CEO of Daniel's Broiler, our old friend, Lindsey Schwartz. Happy New Year, Lindsey. What's going on? How was Christmas Eve? How was New Year's Eve at Daniel's Broiler? Yeah, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve were both great. We were really pleased with the results and, and really grateful for the support from the community. We had some great nights. So delivery and pickup is your world now, that along with the expanding outside seating at your locations. 
That is our world, and we're making the most of it. Uh, we've got outdoor options at all three locations. Bellevue has awnings and heaters outside on the deck. Leshai has a patio that is fully tented with heaters, and Lake Union has two options. It has a tented, heated deck, and then also down below on the patio, it is tented and heated. So we, we are just adding as many seats as we can and um, getting some great results. So still an opportunity to spend our special occasions at Daniel's Broiler. Can I get the Vuv Clico, and is it going to cost me $41 now that you're in your 40, 41st year? We decided to stick with, with 40. Uh, <laughs> why not? Keep the party going. Keep the nice round number. So, so yeah, come on in and, and get it for 40 bucks. And, and the best way to get delivery of Daniel's Broiler is what method? You just go on our website, danielsbroiler.com. There's a tab at the top that says delivery. Mm-hmm. Click on that. That'll work for both delivery and takeout. And that's a perfect way, ladies and gentlemen, to make your home like Daniel's Broiler a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. on the PGA Tour, and it's come down to this putt. He's back in the winner's circle if this falls. Get in the hole! It is over! Golf sensation Tiger Woods says his car crash outside his Florida mansion is a private matter, and he intends to keep it that way. Meanwhile, rumors involving his wife and possibly an affair with a New York woman continue to swirl at this hour. Many doubted we'd ever see it. Here it is. The return to glory. This episode 125 of Mitch Unfiltered sits in between the two-part release of HBO's new documentary, Tiger, a deep dive into the life and mind of Tiger Woods. Here's award-winning co-director Matthew Hamachek joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. Happy New Year, Matthew. Happy New Year, Mitch. Thank you so much for having me. Congrats on the effort. Has there been an athlete in our lifetime, Matthew, that has stoked our curiosity as much as Tiger Woods? No, I, I think I think that's a, a very interesting point to raise. For me, in 2009, on Thanksgiving night, I realized that Tiger Woods is arguably the most famous and recognizable face on the planet, one of them, certainly. And on that night, we realized that despite everything that's been written about him and every TV appearance he's had and every interview he's done, we know next to nothing about him. And that was the initial spark for me that sort of sent me down um, what now is a multi-year journey to to make this film with Matt Heineman, my co-director. You may have just answered the next question. How much of the curiosity that we all have around the world is created by the fact that he won't let us in, Matthew? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will say this, not that it's any really my judgment to make one way or the other, but I don't blame Tiger at all. I think the thing that I noticed as I started to make this film and 
really got to know and talk to some of the people that knew Tiger best at various points in his career. We're talking about people that were sort of, you know, in his living room when he was a, a kid and uh, knew his family quite well. And then, you know, his caddy of 11 years, Steve Williams, who was inside the ropes with Tiger at these huge tournaments, won all but, you know, a couple of uh, the majors that Tiger has uh, with him. They are all so fiercely protective of him to this day. And we're talking about people who, in some cases, were cut out of Tiger's life by Tiger in a, in a very sort of uh, brutal way. And you would think, you know, your natural inclination is that they would, you know, sort of have an axe to grind with him because they were upset with him. But it was uh, universally the opposite. And I think what these folks saw as they got to have a front row seat to Tiger's life is that from a very, very young age, the people around Tiger and then eventually the media and the public at large really thrust these uh, expectations and I, 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 in some cases identities onto Tiger, what they wanted him to be, what they wanted him to represent to them. And in a lot of ways, this all goes back to uh, the father-son relationship between him and Earl. Mm-hmm. You talk about the number of people that participated with you in this two-part series on HBO. If there has been a criticism of the documentary in some of the reviews, and there haven't been, there hasn't been much criticism, it's that the ardent Tiger follower has read and seen much of what we will see in this two-part series. But these people that you referred to, like Stevie Williams, they've been reluctant to participate in such a project in the past, and they were willing to talk to you guys. What happened, do you think? Well, let me address uh, a couple things that you just said. It's interesting. We, we live in a culture now where if, if, you're, if you're a fan of somebody, a lot of folks don't really want to hear uh, anything bad said about them. And if you, you hate a person, same number of folks don't want to hear a single good thing said about them. And I think that the people who are sort of in Tiger Woods fan club have been mistaken in this idea that if we cover any of the events in Tiger's life, that uh, it's automatically you know an anti-Tiger uh, film. I think when these people watch it, they'll realize that it's anything but that. And in a lot of ways, it's an extremely uh, sympathetic film about Tiger and the pressures that he's been under for a very long period of time. There's tons that's new in this film, and a lot of it is because of the people that we were able to get access to. And it was really, in each of their cases, a, a multi-month process of convincing them that we were really going to make a comprehensive and complex, nuanced portrait of Tiger Woods. And that we weren't going to do sort of the same thing that the sort of fawning golf media has done for so many years. And we weren't going to do the thing that the tabloids have done to him for so many years. Yeah. And in fact, I think a, a, a large part of the film is an indictment of the, the tabloid media. And once we were able to convince these people that really knew Tiger and have a great deal of love for him to this day, I think that uh, that really, you know, when we were able to convince them that we were making that complex portrait of his life and his story, I think that's when they were really finally willing to sit down and talk to us. And uh, you can you can see when you watch the film, the two parts, these people are not 
you know, they do not have an axe to grind. They are still fiercely protective of him. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing to watch. I'm a huge golf guy, but I like the fact that you and Matthew Heineman, your co-director, I haven't seen the movie, but I think my preference would have been for makers of this documentary to be from outside the golf world. How do you think that changes what we see? Well, look, you know, the, the folks that love, uh, like yourself, who, who love golf and have followed Tiger in some cases sort of religiously for many years, I can assure you, you're going to have plenty to chew on with this film. You're going to get all of the highlights. And in part one in particular is a celebration of, of Tiger's golfing prowess. You know, you're going to get all the highlights and you know all of that. I, I think the advantage of not being one of the people that have covered Tiger for all these years is that we were able to take a step back and really look at his story in a way that I don't think has ever been told before. And again, it all comes back to this thing where you know we we start the film at the 1996 Haskins Awards banquet, which was is is the uh, an award for the top collegiate golfer in the country. And Earl Woods, his father at that event in 1996, said that his son was gonna transcend the game and bring to the world a humanitarianism that had never been seen before. And as one of our subjects, Gary Smith, who spent some time with the Woods family uh, in 1996, got to know Earl and Tiger quite well. As he put it, Earl had this vision for his son that he was gonna you know, unite the different races and tribes of humanity. And that's extremely lofty expectations to put on at the time, you know, a 20 something year old kid. And then, you know, when Nike introduced Tiger to the world with all of their commercials, they sort of carried on this vision that Earl had for him. And then after that, the the media and the public all started to glom on to this idea of Tiger is this thing that could represent all of these different things for them. And for some, it was perfection. And they built him up and they built him up. And then in 2009, Tiger, all he did is sort of reveal himself to be a human being to us. Uh, and, and the second that that happened, a lot of the people, and Pete McDaniel, Earl Wood's biographer and close family friend talks about this, all those same people that have been building him up all those years, as Pete puts it, they jumped on him with both feet. And then the second he started playing golf again, and I, I, you know, in 2018 when he won at East Lake, and then in, in 2019 with the Masters, you know, as soon as he started winning golf tournaments again, all of a sudden it was about redemption. This idea, everybody started writing about how it was redemption, and and that was always curious to me because why does Tiger have to redeem himself in our eyes? The things that he did that people wrote about for so long. It was between him and his wife and him and his children and, and people like that. It, I don't understand why he had to redeem himself in our eyes. We are the ones who spent so much time building him up all those years. This is a guy who plays golf extremely well. The rest of it is stuff that we sort of put onto him. You know, in a lot of ways, I could never have handled the pressure that Tiger was under. I know that filmmakers of documentaries hate these types of questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You, talk, you talked about Earl Woods. What's your conclusion personally? Matthew, what's your conclusion of Earl Woods, the man? So I'm going to give you, I'm going to, uh, you said documentarians don't like getting these questions. I'm going to give you sort of uh, a, a mix of both the documentary filmmaker answer and then um, a little something else, which is my favorite kind of films, honestly, are the ones that don't give simple answers to things. They oftentimes ask more questions than they answer. And I think Earl is an incredibly complicated figure. 
I don't think that you can find a father-son relationship where there was just that much love between the two of them. But we document the complicated parts of their relationship as well. And I can assure you that within our team, the entire time we were making it, different people at different times would say, oh, I think this about Earl, and it would pivot, and people would love him and go back and forth on him a lot. But one of the things that I had to reckon with as I was sort of making this film is this. I have two, two boys, and I often asked myself, you know, because one of the accusations against Earl is that he had this sort of tunnel vision when he saw, uh, you know, Tiger take a swing when he hopped out of his high chair, according to Earl, at under 10 months old. Tiger took a swing and Earl said, oh my gosh, I've got something special on my hands. And then from that point on, it was golf, golf, golf. And, that, and people have criticized him for that. I have honestly had to ask myself, look, if one of my kids hopped up from their high chair and did something like that at that age, how would I react? And I, I don't think that it's an easy question to answer. And there's this debate out there between specialization and generalization, Correct. right? Where, right. you know, specialization sort of being the Earl Woods route, which was you're going to golf and you're not going to do pretty much anything else besides golf. The generalization route is we're going to expose this kid to many different things. And, you know, Roger Federer, it's been well documented that his parents really focused on that and made sure that he tried all sorts of different sports and did all sorts of different things. I don't necessarily know what the right way is. I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I often ask myself, you know, what would I do if I was in Earl's shoes? And I think that informed the way that I tried to make the story of Earl and Tiger, which is a foundational story of, of the Tiger Woods story. I tried to make it complicated because of that. I didn't want to paint with broad brushstrokes because I feel like that's exactly what's happened to Tiger his entire life. It's either he's perfect and we don't want to say anything bad about him, or he's a villain and we have to vilify him constantly. And I feel like those are the two sides that have been sort of talking about Tiger Woods all these years. And I didn't want to just do that again. I can't wait to see a Tiger on HBO. Part one released this past Sunday, part two coming this Sunday. I understand, Matthew, that there's a very poignant moment, a few poignant moments in there involving a tearful ex-golf pro who worked with Tiger. Tell our audience about mm -hmm. that. So Joe Groman worked at the Navy golf course, which was, um, you know, nearby Tiger and Earl and Tita's house, his mom, Tita, who I think has also been her influence on Tiger has been greatly unreported uh, over time. I think that a lot of people that really were there and knew that family well would point to the fact that Tiger's fierce competitiveness came from Tita as much as it came from Earl. And she was a remark. She is a remarkable person. I love that she called Mickelson hefty, by the way, instead of <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a funny moment in the yeah, movie. Yeah. But no, she was she's a tough one. Um, and remind me, what was your what was your oh Joe Groman? Yeah. So Joe Groman was a, was the golf pro at the Navy Golf Course, and Earl because he was in the military, he's actually a Green Beret. And one of the more fascinating parts about the story is sort of how he taught Tiger a lot of the things that he learned while in you know the Special Forces, and gave him those mental sort of skill sets. But Joe worked there and became very close to Earl and Tiger. And Joe. Um, at one point in the movie talks about how he and Earl were unfaithful to their wives while they were, as Joe puts it, sort of the two most important male figures in Tiger's life. And I think that 
Joe, uh, to this day, like everybody else we talked to, is fiercely, fiercely protective of Tiger. And in this instance, because of what he allowed Tiger to witness, he has a great deal of guilt about it. And it, it was fascinating to listen to him and get to know him and um, have him talk about it. But man, if there was ever a person who was in the um, Earl Woods uh, fan club, it's Joe Groman. He really got a, a front row seat to see how much of an incredible relationship Tiger and Earl had with each other. But, you know, he also saw the other side of it and um, talks about that in great detail. Is there still a relationship between Joe and Tiger? Is there still a relationship between Tiger and any of the people that you talk to? Because Tiger has a way, as we all know who've watched him closely, of cutting people out of his life that talk to the media about about his story. Yeah, I mean, Tiger left Southern California when he moved to Isleworth when he turned pro. Um, I'm not sure, I can't remember the exact date, but you know, around that 97 era, maybe uh, slightly before the 97 Masters. And... Isleworth is in Florida, so as far away from California as you can pretty much get. And after that, they lost touch. But uh, you know, Joe would tell me about how he would go to tournaments sometimes and say, and you know, they have he had a nickname. I can't remember what it was for Tiger, and he would shout it out, and then Tiger would look over and wave and things like that. But they're certainly uh, cordial with each other when they see when they see each other and things like that. If I if I remember correctly, I I, I hope I'm getting that right. But, you know, I think Pete McDaniel is certainly, I don't know if he's in touch with Tiger as much, but he's in touch with folks in that camp and and, and everything. And there's Who's plenty Pete of McDaniel? people. I, Who's Pete McDaniel? Pete McDaniel is Earl, Earl Wood's biographer and okay. was a very close personal friend of Earl's, wrote at least one book with Earl, uh, maybe, maybe a couple of them. And... I, I, and was very close with Tiger as well. I'm assuming, by the way, Matthew, sorry to interrupt, that the attempt yeah. to get Tiger to participate in your film didn't go very far, didn't get off the ground. Well, we reached out to them twice, actually. We, when Matt and I started making the movie, we reached out to them right away before we filmed a single interview because we wanted Tiger to be able to tell his own story and to talk to us. And so it was the first thing we did. We reached out to his camp and... They told us that he was not going to be able to participate because of a previous uh, existing media relationship uh, contract that he had, I, I believe, with Golf TV. Yeah. And so, okay. once we heard that, we we you know we that's when we started to say, okay, well, you know, we're we're going to go talk to some other folks then. And you know, Matt and I said this to ourselves, so we said, you know, okay, we got to go talk to other folks. But the focus became finding people that really knew Tiger well, and we didn't want it to just be golf journalists that had sort of walked the course with Tiger and sort of covered him at times. Right, and so it, right. that, that's where that all started. And then we reached out to Tiger again when we were almost finished with editing to give him one more chance to see if that contract had you know, gone away. But he said that, that or ha he didn't. But have his, you heard, his have people you, told us. Have you heard from him since? Have you, have they seen, I, have they seen, uh, have you sent any copies of the, of the two parts to his camp? Do you, have you gotten any reaction from his camp? We have not heard a peep from them. I, I would assume Tiger Woods has HBO and maybe he, he watched last night and maybe he'll watch uh, maybe he'll watch Sunday. this yeah. Sunday coming yeah. up. If they want a copy, they can, they can certainly <laughs> ask for one. Terrific stuff. Now, before you go, I'm going to change the subject altogether because I have you and you were part. Okay. You were a central part. And I'm going to ask one of those questions that I'm not supposed to ask documentarians again. Sure, sure. Um, you were a central part in the Amanda Knox documentary, which yep. you know has ramped up interest out here in the Northwest because of, of her roots here. Fair or unfair for me to ask you what you believe went down in that Italian apartment in 2007? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer. I'm going to, I'm going to answer. Well, first off, I think it's pretty well documented that Amanda had nothing to do with the murder of Meredith Kircher. And I think the, and it's interesting, you know, when I started working on that film, I was a, I was a writer and editor and producer. I have to say that I was very skeptical of her innocence when I started working on the film. It's a credit to the two directors on that, uh, that they were willing to hire somebody that, you know, they'd poured over the evidence for so many years and, uh, they knew that story so well. It, 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 it shows the confidence they had in themselves and the willingness that they had to bring in somebody who at least at first didn't know what to think of Amanda and had sort of only known things through the lens of the media. But I got to really study the, the evidence in great detail. And I can say that uh, I am almost certain of her of You her like innocence. her? Um, you like her, Matthew? Yeah, I found her to be an incredibly compelling person. I think, yep. let, me, let me just say this. I think there's a lot of similarities between the Amanda Knox story and the Tiger Woods story. Uh, both of these people have had their entire identity told through the lens of the media. And I think that um, in both cases, they, they're they very misunderstood people. And um, I think in some ways, the Tiger Woods film that uh, I've made is a companion piece to the Amanda Knox movie. There's a very interesting sort of as, as somebody put it, a rot that's sort of going on with our culture in terms of the way the media portrays people, especially tabloid journalism. And I think that in both cases, it was uh, they are sort of studies of that issue within our culture and our society. The name of the uh, the picture is Tiger. It's on HBO. The first part was released last week. You can find it on demand this week and get ready for part number two coming this Sunday on HBO. He's Matthew Hamacek. He's an award-winning director and documentarian and uh, very much a part of the Tiger piece. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, Matthew. Thanks for being on Mitch Thank Unfiltered. You. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Jordan Flowers of the Kirkland office at Guild Mortgage is back with us not to talk refinances and interest rates this time, but instead three charities that are on his team's mind. How are you, Jordan? Hey, Mitch. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me back on. Happy holidays to you and everyone. Yeah, Guild is a huge proponent of just serving the communities we work and live in. We serve kind of with our time and hours throughout the year. We're focused on Youth Eastside Services, or YES, Children's Hospital, and an organization called Girls on the Run. Let's break them down. Youth Eastside Services is what, Jordan? Yeah, it's an organization that focuses on helping children, teams, and families that are struggling with depression, grief, trauma, substance abuse, eating disorders, and a bunch of other issues. And it's just um, helping them find counseling and support to help these children get through these times. YouthEastSideServices.org for more information. How about Girls on the Run? Girls on the Run, I was introduced to recently, but it's a great organization that helps uh, young girls and women find confidence and self-esteem through athletics. And they go out and recruit coaches to build these programs at local grade schools and middle schools. Girlsontherun.org. And of course, all of us know about uh, Seattle Children's, but how about the Uncompensated Fund for Children's Hospital, Jordan? Yeah, Children's, everybody knows, phenomenal hospital and institute for people here locally. But the Uncompensated Fund really focuses on families that receive the hard news of very expensive surgeries and them possibly not being able to afford those surgeries and what might come of that from 
foreclosing on a home or going bankrupt really because they just don't have the coverage for it. So the uncompensated fund goes towards helping those families cover the cost of those surgeries. Terrific work, Jordan. They're driven to give back. That's the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. Bitcoin soaring to new record highs today. The cryptocurrency cracking the $40,000 mark for the first time in history before pulling back. And check this out. In the last month, Bitcoin has doubled while gold has been left in the dust. We're wandering away from sports, football on this episode 125 for a few minutes. Ever since I admitted to not fully understanding what the heck Bitcoin is on an earlier show, I've actually received a handful of emails from listeners who've asked for a short segment and education. So enter the teacher on this episode 125, Mark DeCambry, an editor of Market Watch. Happy New Year, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, Mitch. So you remember, Mark, grade school teachers used to tell us there's no such thing as a stupid question. So keep that in mind for this interview. I don't want you getting off the phone thinking, that guy from Seattle, what an idiot. No, no doing that now, okay? I, I don't think that. <laughs> not yet. Not, not, not yet. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself way behind on a topic that the world's talking about all because when the discussion was hatched, you kind of dismissed it and didn't get on the train originally? That's how I feel with Bitcoin. Would you explain what Bitcoin is? Kind of start from the beginning, if you would, Mark. So you were one of those people that went into a closet in 2017? <laughs> yes, I am. I am. <laughs> so now you're out of the uh, the, uh, the closet is, uh, from a digital currency standpoint, it right. seems. Um, I guess I would, I would kind of throw the question back at you. You know, if you were in grade school, did you ever ask the question, what is money? Uh, probably not, but somebody probably did. I guess money has changed over the years. Yeah, and I mean, basically, you, you've got a dollar bill in your hand, right? And you go to the store and you exchange that dollar bill for goods and services. And it has the, uh, the full faith of uh, the government behind it, right? Yes. It used to have gold behind it, but um, the gold was uh, separated from currencies 20, 30 years ago. So now we are longer. But now, and, and, and really, the, the whole idea behind currencies is really just faith and the belief that um, the central banks and, and treasuries that print money will be behind it, if anything goes goes pear-shaped so you accumulate money for and you and you use it to exchange it for goods and services now enter big bitcoin in 2009 and the idea was basically to decentralize money um, during the 2008 financial crisis there was a lot of money printing from various governments printing because the economy was in terrible shape due to uh, commercial real estate crisis and and uh, commercial securities that had really proliferated across the globe. Some guy or guys or and I, and I mean that sort of in a, in a neutral gender neutral way, uh, but some someone created a code that would decentralize a currency, which became Bitcoin, and and basically it is digital money that you can exchange over the internet and every time you exchange that digital currency um, it there's a new code that's written up and that ledger there's a sort of a distributed ledger sort of a digital ledger that that tracks each transaction and that um, that, that can't be changed 
And so each transaction is tracked over over time and there's only ever going to be a certain, a finite amount of these, these bitcoins. So there's a, there's a scarcity principle to it as well. Since 2009, this, this, this currency, which was, was basically, you know, you could get for like fractions of a penny, fractions of a penny, um, now is, 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 uh, is worth a single Bitcoin, is worth over 40,000. Unbelievable. So am I buying things with it or am I collecting it like a, a rare coin? That's the question. Bitcoin hasn't figured itself out, which is actually the reason why there are other digital currencies or, or altcoins, as, as they describe them. Um, they're alternatives to Bitcoin that profess to be faster in transactions because it can take a little while for people to confirm a transaction over Bitcoin, perhaps too, too long for, uh, for some people so that, you know, when you go to a, you know, Visa, you know, when you go to an, and, and use your credit card to purchase an item, it, it, it's, you know, fractions, you know, it's, it's very short time, you know, um, to process a, a Bitcoin transaction, it'll, it'll, it'll take quite a bit longer. So the idea of uh, Bitcoin as a currency isn't quite there because it's, it's not it's not as fast as it could be. So that's why you you always see these sort of new iterations of Bitcoin and people trying to come out with um, alternatives to Bitcoin because they want to basically build a better mousetrap. Right. But that's digital currencies in a nutshell. I, I guess I don't understand the part of it that I don't understand is I understand why you buy stock in a company when a company is doing well. And the financials come out and it's doing well. You buy stock in a company. What would be the explanation, Mark, for this? La these, let's say these last couple of months where I understand it's gone, it's doubled, right? Up to about, over, as you say, over $40,000 per Bitcoin is the value. Why? Why are people running out to buy Bitcoin in the last couple of months? What happened in the last couple of months that would make us do something like that? Well, I mean, at the heart of it, it's still kind of speculative, right? It's still speculation, almost the same reason that people buy Tesla, because they think electric vehicles are going to take over the world, though there's not really, you know, right now, Tesla isn't making enough vehicles to, to justify its, its, um, its current valuation. Uh, but the idea behind buying bitcoins now is because people are, are thinking about, yeah. or, they're speculating, but they're also thinking about a bunch of different things. They're thinking about, will the dollar be the dominant currency going forward? Will the euro, will the yuan, where, where is it going to be? Is, is, is gold a good place to hedge, to put my money? Particularly, again, in an environment in which there's a lot of money being printed. I think there's a, a, a stat out that says three quarters of the money that has um, printed thus far over the past, you know, during this pandemic is, you know, basically double or triple what we've seen over the course of history, the history of, of money. So, so much money has actually been created trying to stem the uh, economic damage from this pandemic that folks are fearful. The fiat currencies, those, those currencies that we are more familiar with, like the euro or the, or the US dollar, that those are going to be devaluated uh, or devalued because um, there, there's, there's so much money sloshing around, around the world. And then we also have the Fed, the Federal Reserve, um, providing a lot of, a lot of liquidity. And there's expectations that we'll see uh, perhaps more stimulus under a, a Joe Biden administration. Can a person go out and buy a portion of a Bitcoin? I mean, who can spend $40,000 on one Bitcoin? 
It's, it's you can't you 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 don't have to buy a forty thousand dollars you know shell out forty thousand dollars to get a bitcoin. There are plenty of places that you could presumably go and like Coinbase or I the see. various uh, crypto platforms and buy a fraction of a bitcoin. In fact, that's probably how most people um, yeah. own bitcoins at this point or, yeah. or other cryptocurrencies yeah. in fractional amounts. Yeah, you know, there's an NFL. We talk sports on this podcast. There's an NFL player who used to be here in Seattle as a member of the Seahawks. His name is Russell Okung, and he's an independent thinker. He was one of the first NFL players that didn't have an agent. He represented himself in negotiations. He announced recently that half of his salary, Mark, is going to be paid to him in Bitcoin. That's the first time I've ever heard of that, professional sports. Is that essentially like being compensated in stock options instead of cash, and he's just kind of betting on Bitcoin's rise in value? Is that what he's doing? Yeah, but he's not thinking. Of, I, I assume he's not thinking about Bitcoin as a stock. He's thinking about Bitcoin as the evolution of money. Okay. He's thinking about Bitcoin perhaps as transformational going forward. He could be wrong, right? He could be or betting on the wrong horse as far as this uh, transformation goes, because we don't know if Bitcoin is going to be the one. But there is something to be said about digital currencies as a whole because other governments are trying to produce digital currencies. I'm glad you brought up Tesla earlier, Mark. Is there an Elon Musk of Bitcoin? Is there a founder? Is this guy Roger Ver, the Elon Musk of Bitcoin? No, Roger Ver isn't. I think he's actually behind uh, Bitcoin Cash, but uh, uh, which is, is, is one of those iterations of, of Bitcoin, as is Litecoin and a bunch of other Bitcoin-like um, assets that, again, like I said, profess to be uh, a little bit faster than than the original. But uh, no one really no 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 one really knows who created Bitcoin. Um, and in fact, a lot of people uh, associate Bitcoin with um, person or persons named uh, Nakamoto Satoshi or Satoshi Nakamoto. And and uh, in fact, they they call the the smallest unit of of, uh, of a Bitcoin um, a Satoshi. Mm. And at, at some point, when Bitcoins reach a million in, in whatever world that is, then Satoshi will be worth a dollar, which is kind of the dream of, of, of a lot of the Bitcoin enthusiasts. Mm. I guess the last question is, is there a bubble coming? Is the bubble going to pop on Bitcoin? I mean, we never know. I mean, it, 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 we could be very well in a bubble. It's hard to tell, tell when you're in a bubble until you're out of it. You're looking at the, <laughs> at the rearview mirror. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that happened in 2017, right? Folks yeah. were like, oh, I'm just going to buy Bitcoin. And then it tumbled to, to 3000 That being said, 3000 to folks who had bought Bitcoin for, for pennies. Yes. Perhaps wasn't, you know, <laughs> was still pretty, pretty successful in investment. So uh, incredible, incredible stuff. I, I, I get on the train way too late. But Mark DeCambry is there to save us. Thank you, Mark. Follow him on Twitter. Market Watch editor Mark DeCambry. Thank you, Mark. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me, Mitch. It's time for a little money management trivia with Evergreen Golf Calls lead financial planner, Katie Versio. And I'm going to be honest, Katie, Happy New Year. I don't like my chances on these multiple choice questions. <laughs> happy New Year, Mitch. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to have you. Go ahead. Question number one. So first question, what's the median age for retirement for individuals in the U.S.? I'm thinking that people are living longer, people are healthier longer, so I would say mid to high 60s. I'll go 67, Katie. <laughs> so it's actually 62. 
they will be able to work longer and longer, that you know, they need to save up and work as long as possible. But unfortunately, their skills aren't as relevant or they have illnesses or family things. They have to end up retiring earlier. Wow. Do you give partial credit? Are you a teacher that gives partial credit? <laughs> I'll give you a B for that one. <laughs> All right. I'll take question number two. Go ahead. So what type of retirement account allows for tax-free withdrawals? Is it a traditional IRA, a SEP IRA, a Roth IRA, or a simple IRA? Don't know the differences between all of them. <laughs> There's uh, a lot of acronyms there. I, see, I, I hear a lot of IRAs. I had an uncle IRA. I'll go a SEP IRA. So actually, the correct answer is Roth IRA. <laughs> the other ones that I mentioned are pre-tax. So you get a tax deferral when you contribute, but a Roth IRA, you actually don't get a deduction when you make a contribution, but it comes out tax-free. I'm 0 for 2, although I got partial credit <laughs> on number one. I'm going for the third. Go ahead. Question number three. So what type of medical expense account offers the largest tax benefit? Is it a health savings account? a flex savings account, or a money market account. I noticed you only gave me three this time. You're trying to help me out here. It's a one out of three. Although I've got a health savings account. I like it. I'm going to go with the HSA, the traditional HSA. Yes, that is correct. Ah! That was a, a little bit of an easier one with only three. A money market does not have any tax benefits. A flex savings account, you get a tax deduction when you contribute to it, but you have to use it within a year. So it's kind of a use it or lose it. But a health savings account, you get the tax deduction when you contribute and you can invest those funds like a retirement account, and then you can take money out down the line. So it gets a lot of good tax deferred growth. Some good information from Katie Versio. She's a lead financial planner at our buddies at Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Other Stuff segment, Hot Shot Scott, episode 125. I've been talking a lot on this show. Uh, let you have the floor for the remainder of the way. But before we do that, I thought you would be interested if I listed free agents, Seahawks free agents for you to just think about between now and 125P because you may want to talk about some of these guys at some point. Will okay. they be back? Let's play the game. Will they be back? Greg Olson, the tight end, K.J. Wright, is a free agent. Bruce Irvin, mm. Quinton Dunbar, Hollister, Mayoa, Hyde, Yupati, Obwehi, uh, Thorpe, Posick, Belor, Luke Wilson, Dorsett. How about Shaq Griffin? How about Carlos Dunlop if they don't Dunlap if they don't exercise the final year of his contract, which they won't? How about Chris Carson? How about uh, Josh Gordon? Dunlap, Griffin, Carson, Gordon, Posick. Uh, K.J. Wright, Bruce Irvin, Quentin Dunbar, Mayoa, Carlos Hyde, Upati, just to name a few. So so uh, the Seahawks obviously have some very big yeah. off-season decisions to make that is complicated by what? The fact that they have no draft choices. They, they sent all of their draft choices to the Jets for Jamal Adams. <laughs> they have very few draft choices, and they have very little – in relative terms, salary cap space. So John Schneider, if he was ever going to jump ship and go somewhere else, this would be the perfect year to do that. Just get the hell out of here. Leave <laughs> let somebody else clean up the yeah, mess. Let somebody else have these problems. But uh, uh, God, yeah, the Seahawks have some really big questions facing them. 
you brought up Dunbar. I just I I remember re- thinking Dunbar, Shaq, Diggs, and Jamal Adams, and Trey Flowers. Re- <laughs> well, but those four, like, the, how do they rebuild the freaking Legion of Boom? They did it again, and eh, well, no eh, playoff wins. Well, eh, eh, the first half of the season, but you'd have to say that the second half of the season, the defense played very well. Yeah, reason to be optimistic after the second half of the season. Right? I wanted done more out of Dunbar, but yeah, so anyway. I. So did I. So All right, real quick, I, you might get a kick out of this. I uh, This guy that works for some gambling site, a friend of ours, he always sends me the odds. I check him. He sent me the odds for the, the playoff games for next week. And uh, you'll be happy to know that um, Buffalo is a four-point favor over the Steelers. Wait, wait a second. As we're recording this, the Steelers are getting their absolute asses kicked. <laughs> He already did the. He already sent me the odds for the Steelers oh, and the Bills, but yeah, you, you may want to retract those a little bit. All right, this reminds the, me of the, uh, <laughs> the famous Gastineau promo oh, about God. the Seahawks or, or the Seahawks or the. I think it was the Seahawks so- winning the playoff game. I think it was the Seahawks, and he did two promos. You remember that story? Oh yeah, God, that's such a dirty radio <laughs> trick. Oh God, uh, how, how, how did that go over? Did you get invited to his house for Thanksgiving? No, that year I don't no? think he's talked to me since. <laughs> All right. Do you know that? And for people who don't understand the joke, uh, real quickly, Mike Gastineau, our old buddy from KJR, when I was first here at the station in 1995 or 96, I think the Seahawks are. I think this was a Seahawks were playing a playoff game at some point over the weekend. He was doing the Friday show and the Monday show, of course. And so he wrote. He he did two promos: one if they won, and one if they lost, for us to play on the morning show on Monday morning to promote his show later that afternoon, right? Which is very standard. Very standard. Everyone did it, yeah. Yeah. He wanted to have one promo in case they won. He had, hey, the Seahawks won. It's great. They're going to the second round. Join me today. (laughs) And then the other one where he he goes, well, it was a bad weekend for the Seahawks. We'll talk all about it on the Gas Man Show. And, of course, me being the smart smart ass that I was, I refuse – I, I insisted on playing the wrong one. <laughs> just the master of endearing himself to people in a new city. <laughs> they had, God, they nice had, I think they had lost to the Dolphins or something. They had lost to somebody, and I and I got it all morning him playing. Hey, the oh. Seahawks won. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been that that Trace Armstrong game, maybe uh, yeah. where he just so went off for was, some reason. I think that was later than 95, 96, maybe 97, 98. I don't know. Whenever. Yeah. Then Holmgren Holmgren came to town at some point. But anyway, that was what that's what that reminded me of. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> interrupted the mystery has been unlocked about nicole plotzker also known as nicole young also known as dr dre's wife also known as newport knight former student <laughs> i i had like three uh, people reach out someone reached out to by the way so i forgot i had three cousins that went to newport one of them went graduated in 89 and actually knew her but he had no idea that that was, that she was married to doctor I had no clue until i asked him she said, he said she was smart, funny, and sophisticated in high school. And I was thinking, who's sophisticated in high school? But <laughs> follow me around in high school. I'll show you the opposite of sophisticated. But anyway, do- Dr. Dre's wife is, in fact, from Newport. We can put that to bed. We're yes. done, okay? Yes. We're moving on from that? Yes, we're moving on from that. She did go to Newport. And by the way. Crazy. By the way, going back to your comment about Harry and Sally, we've, we've had this going on for the last couple of episodes. You didn't, you didn't get the when Harry met Sally because... You thought that Billy Crystal could not be a leading man. One of no, our no, 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 no. Don't put words. No, no. <laughs> I said, I said, there's on no planet would Meg Ryan's character be attracted to, to Billy Crystal's. And character. you said why? 
Because he's physically, too, yeah. Physically, and, and, he's and, just. And what did the female listener of Mitch Unfiltered write in? What did he, what Hotshot did write? doesn't know anything about women, right? And 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 if Hotshot thinks that women don't pick guys with great sense of humors over great-looking guys, he doesn't know what he, yeah. he doesn't know women. And your response was what to that? Being funny never got me shit. Okay, I'm glad. It never, and then and then a listener's response to that is as following. By the oh way, God. when Scott said that women aren't attracted to guys with a sense of humor and his own trials and tribulations are a perfect example of why this is true. There's a fatal flaw in this thinking because he's assuming that he's funny. I and, know. I, say, and, I set myself up for that. And based on the jokes at the end of each podcast, I would say that this is very much in dispute. Yeah, that come, yeah it's hard to argue. That comes straight from Jeff Sims. You can say. Hello to Jeff. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. It's very nice of you. Yeah, that, that, maybe that's it. Maybe I just wasn't funny, and that's why it never worked. Uh, Go ahead. God. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. L- LaMelo Ball, yes. the youngest player really in NBA good. history to score a triple-double. Really good. Much better than any of his brothers. Well, maybe not much better than the oldest brother. Certainly the middle brother was no good, but he's very, very good. I've seen him youngest play a couple times. Youngest player to score a triple-double yeah. at 19. Now, who did he beat? What former Husky was the youngest player? To have a triple double. What former yeah, Washington I don't, Husky? I don't, yeah, I didn't like you saying score a triple double. Oh, really? That's, that sounded like a non sports guy trying to do a sports podcast. Score. Nobody scores a triple double. What do they do? You, you register a triple double. You have a, a triple double. You don't score a triple double. You would be the first person, I think, in NBA history broadcaster to say that somebody scored a triple double. Well, didn't, didn't he score points? He did. That's part of the triple-double. Did he score assists? <laughs> yes, he did. Did he score rebounds? <laughs> Twelve of them, as a matter of fact. <laughs> again, I'll read it again. There's a fatal flaw because Hotshot is assuming that he's funny. Okay. That's right. Okay, go ahead. Now, now, who's the Washington Husky who used to have the record? I'm asking you a trivia question here. Oh, I didn't know. Say, say the trivia question again. But, the youngest well, triple-double guy in the history of the NBA? Yeah, the, the youngest to score Marquise a triple-double. It is not Mark. I th- really thought you would you would get this. Well, so he- I said Marquise Chris because I think at one point he was the youngest player in the NBA. When he left Washington after one year, he was really young in the NBA. That's the first guy that came to my mind. But okay, so a University of Washington player until recently held the record for youngest man in the NBA to have a triple double. Is that what you're saying? Nineteen years and three hundred and seventeen days old. It's almost twenty. Okay. Had the record. I think he played one year at, at the University of Washington, if I'm not mistaken. How about uh, Markel Fultz? How about you are correct, yeah, sir? Well, I got it. it. took me two. I'm a second-team All-American. It took me two guesses. Banned from Mitch and the whatever he is now. Mitch on filter. There you go. Right, yes. All right, you remember Casey Anthony? I don't know why this story hit me kind no. of funny. You remember? No. Uh, okay, well, then never mind. Okay, next thing. She was <laughs> she was acquitted. Uh, oh, never mind. Oh, yeah, I think. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. I oh, think she I, was acquitted of the death of her daughter, Kaylee, yeah, yeah, about yeah, 10, yeah, 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, she's now she's the proud new owner of a private investigation company. Case Research and Consulting Services LLC has opened up in West Palm Beach, Florida. You promised. <laughs> you promised. Well, I'm not crapping on Florida. I'm you just saying it's promised. Of, <laughs> well, none of this in 2021. Cut it out. Cut I the crap. The, as Pino would say, cut the crap. Are you following this Bubba Harkins thing at all? He was no. fired last March for providing illegal ball doctoring substances to visiting pitchers. Oh, I, I know the story. I didn't know him by name. Is he the guy from the Angels? Yeah, Maybe. now yes. he's yes. spilling the beans about pitchers using sticky like substances. Like Garrett Cole? He, he sent some stuff to Garrett Cole. Is that right? Yep, yep, yep. that's right, yeah. Yeah, he claimed a lot of Angels used his concoction of rosin and pine tar over the years, including Troy Percival, Brendan Donnelly. 
And then he even named some other MLB guys like Cole, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, and Felix Hernandez. Uh-oh. Potentially getting some uh, some substance from that. This is according to him. This is according to Bubba. He's going scorched earth now. You're going to come at me. I'm yeah, going <laughs> to let the name Just remember slide. before, and I know that I'm a, Fel- I'm a Felix Hernandez apologist, but before you jump to conclusions, the, the real meaning of that stuff, I believe, is to get a better grip on the ball during the winter, during the cold time. I shouldn't say winter time. During cold games. And yes, could it impact the, I, I suppose it could, it, it's not, a, I don't think it was allowed. I think people looked the other way, but I hear you. Hitters rarely complain about it because a better grip usually means better control and less chance of taking a 98 mile an hour <laughs> fastball in the head. So hitters rarely complained about it, but yes, it was illegal. His lawyers are looking for $4 million in damages. So we'll see what happens there. Your, your buddy, Jim Harbaugh got a contract extension Can't after going it. two and four. God. <laughs> If we what all, a, what if, a life. If we all, what a country, Yako Smirnoff. <laughs> if we all could be as bad at our jobs and get oh. extensions and be paid the way he's been paid, it'd be yeah. a lot better world, right? Right. Imagine if a pilot landed a plane in a cornfield and then asked for a raise right after that, an extension. Oh. Like, yeah, it's crazy, two and four, but I don't know. It's not my money. What do I care? All right, really quick, go Cougs. The women's team was down 16 points to the number seven Arizona Wildcats, and they won 71-69 on a buzzer beater. Look at you by doing a, women's a freshman. Look at you doing well, women's you got to give the kooks some love, man. What am I going to talk about the Husky men's team? Have you seen that? <laughs> oh my God! Have you seen that? Okay, well, we've got to so, talk about that. That's that's going to be an item on episode 125P. We're going to talk about the future of Mike Hopkins and maybe even the future of Jen Cohen, athletic mm. director. We will discuss. On 125P. It was the second largest comeback in school history, so I thought I would bring it up. All right, we didn't talk about Tommy Lasorda passing. I don't. Did we? No, we haven't. I don't think we did. No. Yeah, so the the legend and arguably the most famous manager in MLB history. Is that fair to say? And my first interview as an intern, I told you that story. (laughs) Yes, I told my wife that story. In in New York in 19, (laughs) the summer in 1986. Hey, uh, Mr. Lasorda, this is Mitch Levy. I'm an intern for Mutual Broadcasting in Westwood One here in New York. Could, Could we borrow you for just a few minutes on the phone to get a... Get an interview. Could you hold on, Mitch? Could you call me back in five minutes, Mitch? I'm taking a shit. <laughs> I love that. And by the way, if he was here, he would be cool. That he would love you telling that story. <laughs> it's very, it really is oh, funny. Oh God, my first so, ever call oh, as an oh, intern. I'm nervous. I'm sweating. I'm on the phone. The phone. My yeah. hands are sweating. And Tommy sure. Lasorda hits me with that line. My first ever call. And you want to know s- what happened to me? That's what happened. I'm, to me. Yeah, I'm really happy you didn't say that he was a jerk to you. I love that the no, story went that no, no. way. And then I, I called love him, it. I called him five or ten minutes later. I said, "Is everything okay? Are you clear?" <laughs> he said, "I'm ready now. Go ahead." Are you clear? And he gave me 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in '97. Total legend. He led the Dodgers to titles in '81 and '88. He was 93. You want to hear a quick Rickles story, Don? Because him and Don Rickles were really good friends. I don't know if you knew that. No, but it makes sense that they would be friends. Go ahead. About the same size, too. It kind of looked like the same guy. But so on fan appreciation night one night, Tommy says to Don, hey, why don't you come sit in the dugout? We'll get you a uniform. Come sit in the dugout with us during the game because Rickles is a huge baseball fan. So Rickles puts the uniform on. They're sitting there. Middle of the game, Lasorda says, hey, Don, I want you to go out and take the pitcher out of the game for me. He's like, oh, I can't take the pitcher out of it. What are you talking about? He goes, nah, no one will care. Last game of the year. Just go out and get the pitcher. He's like, oh, God. So Rickles goes out there to the mound. He says, all right, give me the ball, kid. The guy goes, you can't take me out. Who are you? You don't even work for the Dodgers. You can't. You get, give me the ball. <laughs> no, no. I only give the ball to Tommy. You're not Tommy. Get out of here. So they go, they're going back and forth. 
Umpire Harry Wendelstedt comes out to the mound. Sure, I remember Harry Wendelstedt. Rips off the mask and says, what the hell's going on out here? And then says, oh, hey, it's Don Rickles. Can you get me two tickets to the Dean Martin show in Vegas? <laughs> Rickles claims that's a true story. So I love that. I love that story. So anyway, because you love, will be missed. You, you love Don Rickles as I do. Well, we both I love, love him, Don yeah. Rickles. Yeah. Huge fan. Yeah. Dun, All right. Da, da. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. I'm a nice guy. He come out oh, singing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a nice guy. Yeah. Oh, oh God. yeah, yeah. yeah there's a good. there's a great video of him singing, and then Frank Sinatra stands up in the crowd and leaves. It was a plant, obviously, but he, as soon as Don starts singing, Sinatra hit the bricks. <laughs> Frank, where are you going? Where are you? Whoa, where are you going here? I can't hear you sing anymore. Oh. All right, anyway, look, a Frank. More. Look, Frank. I'm busy. Can't you see that? Now get out of here. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, when he begged him to come over to his table to impress a girl yeah. he, Look, he Frank, finally stop comes bothering over. me i'm busy right now now get the hell out of here <laughs> how, do you, how do i know if your album's gonna sell frank leave me alone <laughs> oh you could spend all day on youtube looking at, at, at rickles rickles appearances on the johnny carson show you could yeah. literally you could spend five hours watching appearance after appearance of don rickles on the johnny carson show and be entertained and don't sell him short on letterman too they had a pretty mm-hmm. it's it's there, there there's not many people that talk to david letterman the way rickles did yeah and if, if you know david and you know how prickly he's been you know rumored to be yeah the fact that he'll just tell the guy to shut up or call him a dummy <laughs> it's just it kills me every time because letter who's talking to letterman like that no one <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. WNBA star Renee Montgomery, she is the brand new she has a brand new business partner. His name is Marshawn Lynch. Oh boy. As co-owner of a football team in the new We talked about that new fan-controlled football league. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so Renee Montgomery, the NBA star, has joined somebody up else. with Marshawn Lynch. There's somebody yeah, else too. There's somebody else yeah. big, like Steph Curry or something. Yeah, I mean Richard yeah. Sherman's in on Richard it. Richard Sherman's so. in on it, right? That's who it was. It's yeah. a what it is, it's a full contact 7 on 7 league. So teams are competing on, on a 50-yard field, and all the games will take place at a facility in Atlanta. All right, last one. You ready? Yep. A Florida man. No, no, no. Don't I said it would be one week. No wonder you didn't come over tonight. Now I get the real reason. <laughs> you know I'd punch you in the nose with a Florida man. You promised me no Florida men in 2021. It's, uh, look, it, here's one that I passed on. Listen to this. This is just a headline. Naples man calls 911 about McDonald's order and says he has cocaine in his butt. Okay, that's one I didn't do, all right? That you was could, another Florida you, guy. You know, you, you, you could also do the Florida man in the Northwest in Bellevue whose wife and him had the fire department out here with smoke in the house after we recorded oh. the episode last night because of a, uh, of a fireplace mishap. That's a Florida oh, man, I, and that would be me. <laughs> you could do the story about true. that Florida man. Maybe you, I'll do that here, next episode. Here you were telling us about possible COVID outbreaks at the Soden household, and I had to hang up on you because the whole house was full of smoke and right, fire people. You, you, said, you said to me, I have to go. The house is full of smoke. I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was. But all's well that ends well. I Brett, like, cooking something that he shouldn't have been. Brett was literally upstairs in his in his game place where he has the headsets on and the microphone on, he's on Twitch or doing whatever he's doing, playing yeah, video yeah. games. He didn't even come outside the door. The house could have been completely on fire <laughs> and he would have stayed right there doing his thing. <laughs> right. Just a little dialed in, was he? A little dialed <laughs> to in. To his video games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So this, this Florida guy, he was arrested for some heinous stuff, but he's also being accused by the sheriffs of a pretty dirty hobby. According to Polk County Sheriff, I don't know where Polk County is. Polk County. Grady... Grady Judd, investigators learned Jose Araza, 58, 
purchased and ate soiled underwear. He was buying these things and ingesting them. Did you hear me? Sheriff Judd said. He was all worked up at the press conference. He was munching on them. This guy has a problem. All right. First of all, speak for yourself, Sheriff. All right. No, not going to you try. Who knows? Judd says Araza was fired as an IT specialist. Not for, laughing. For Lockheed Martin and that the 58-year-old holds a master's degree. Anyway, he was arrested for uh, some other, other stuff, but then they learned this about him. So, all right. Obviously, this guy's favorite store in the mall is Victoria's Secret, or as he calls it, the food court. I'm not laughing. No ding? All right. I'm not laughing. All right. It's, it's been a tough couple of months for this guy. He's on a real losing streak. <laughs> Apparently, this guy's New Year's resolution is to drop a few pounds, so he's only eating unsoiled undies these days. <laughs> eating dirty underwear isn't a crime. Oh, At least that's what the really? police say, so who crazy. knows? Who knows? Oh. This is really uncharted territory. Oh, God. <laughs> and finally... If I knew that there was a market for dirty undies, I'd be the goddamn Baskin-Robbins of that business. <laughs> and the show has reached a new low. Just when I thought 125 was going swimmingly. I want to yeah. repeat. I want to repeat. Scott's yeah. fatal flaw. <laughs> Assuming yeah, he's that he's right. funny, based on his jokes at the end of each podcast, I would say that this is very much in dispute. Yeah. Signed, Jeff Sims. Yeah, well, Jeff, Jeff Sims, I, I think, is probably correct. <laughs> I definitely make myself laugh, but that might be about it. <laughs> well, if we don't laugh, us Seahawks fans are going to cry. That's episode yeah. 125. Become a patron by going to MitchUnfiltered.com. Thank you, patrons, and thanks to all of you for uh, keeping us afloat on Mitch Unfiltered. We're almost three years into this thing and still going. Actually, we, uh, we're almost three years into this thing and still going. Episode 125 is in the books. <laughs>